This week, Roland Diaz from Tanium is with us to discuss one of the trickiest supply chain security challenges. Then Ross Haleluk from Lima Charlie joins us to talk about product-led growth and building products in cybersecurity. Finally, in the enterprise security news, a light week in funding after last week's mega raises from Wiz and Sandbox AQ. HP acquires some zero trust in Casby with Access Security. InfoSec-themed tabletop gaming is really catching on. The White House's updated cybersecurity strategy is more of an update than a game changer, at least in my opinion. I go a bit nuts with AI news and essays, but I promise it's worth your time. There's some interesting stuff this week. Doing evil things with Chrome extensions, women in cybersecurity, letting strangers call you on purpose, all that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production for security professionals by security professionals. Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to all the shows on our network. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly and happy National Get Over It Day. This is episode 308, recorded on Thursday, March 9th, 2023. I'm your host, Adrian Sanabria, and joining me is the Master of Marketing, the Mayor of Mayhem, Tyler Shields. How are you, Tyler? I am doing well, and uh, today has been a perfect day. That's awesome. Uh, those days are good and should be relished. Also joining me is the czar of Zero Trust, the captain of content, Katie Teitler. How are you, Katie? I am well. How are you, Adrian? I, I'm getting over it. I'm, uh, You're getting no, over it's it. Been, it's been a good day. I think that's uh, a good when, mantra for life. I started off with a dentist, but the dentist is always a good trip for me. Uh, that's... Uh, you know, apparently teeth and hair is something I'm, I'm blessed with. So <laughs> every time I uh, go to the dentist, they uh, actually, she told me today, keep drinking coffee because uh, without removing coffee stain, I'd have nothing else to do with your teeth. <laughs> so I'll take it. I'll take the wins. Sounds like and, a good uh, day. Sean Metcalf is on a boat. So that's that's something we'll have to also get over. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, National Get Over It Day. I, I don't know where that comes from, but that that is an actual day that is today. All right, uh, some announcements here. Security Weekly listeners, Identiverse 2023 is heading to Vegas. Join the digital identity community at the Aria Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, May 30th to June 2nd. Identiverse is a must-attend annual event that brings together over 2,500 security professionals for four days of world-class learning, engagement, and entertainment. I think it was in Denver last year, but uh, but yeah, Vegas is uh, definitely has some room for for conferences. Maybe they're getting too big. As a community member, you're able to receive 20% off your Identiverse 2023 tickets using code ISV23-SW20. That code is ISV23-SW20. I believe we also have it in the show notes if you didn't get that written down. So check out the show notes as well for this podcast. And you can register at securityweekly.com forward slash Identiverse 2023. All right. Our first interview today is sponsored by Tanium. 
Today's topic is tackling S-bombs, not waiting for and tackling them today, not waiting for vendors to get around to generating for them, uh, them for you. And we're excited to have Roland Diaz, the Director of Technical Product Management at Tanium with us today. Hi, everybody. Welcome, How Roland. How you all doing? Tyler's having a perfect day. Mine's mine's not been bad. How's your day been, Katie? Good. I've uh, been getting over my procrastination and, and doing all the things I need to do. So it's been productive. All right. That's awesome. All right. So, um, so yeah, you know, S-bombs, uh, I, people have been talking about them for, for decades, you know, but now with, with the White House talking about S-bombs, um, you know, much more, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, the topic of conversation and, you know, one of the challenges here is, you know, I think the original idea is uh, if you ship a product, you also ship a software bill of materials uh, with it, right, Roland? And and that's just, it's not happening in a lot of cases. So, yeah, the way I kind of look at it is, is uh, you know, what we're talking about here is, is why wait? You know, you can generate it yourself. You know, if you have access to the software, uh, you know, you, you, can, you can pull that data yourself. Yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, if you take a look at what's happened over his, you know, over the history, a lot of companies never gave uh, S-bombs or software bill of materials. And now everybody's trying to catch up. Uh, since Log4j came out with the executive order 14028, there's a real push in the industry to kind of get that. And the challenges that most people face is that, you know, if you have older software sitting in your environment, if you have a large developer environment where they have a lot of open source libraries sitting on their endpoints, you have no idea what it looks like. Most vendors today do what they call build time bill of materials. So they only know about it when they compile the application and deliver it. And what we do is different. We do what we call runtime. So what happens using the Tanium platform, we catalog all the files on every disk in your, in your environment. And then we tell it what ecosystems to look for, whether it's Java, Python, Ruby, native binaries, Go binaries, really doesn't make a difference. Once we've compiled that data, we, what we then do is we take the jar files or the war files, and we strip them apart. And we look for all of the dependent libraries, no matter how far down the chain that it goes. So what ends up happening, and probably the best analogy I can give to this is, you know, imagine you have a peanut allergy and you can't eat certain things with peanuts and there's a cookie jar sitting, you know, somewhere and you need to know if there's a peanut in there. What we do is we take the cookie, drop it into our analytics engine, it pulls the entire thing apart and gets the list of ingredients and we display it to you. Um, you know, the challenges that we face in the industry when Log4j first came out was, where are you going to find this thing? It could be buried dozens, if not hundreds of layers deep inside of a jar file or a war file, and you're never going to know that it's there. Um, so our advantage is the fact that we look at the file system. We, we have our own index database that maintains all of that. So we're not crawling a file system. And when you need to do an investigation in a minute or two, you can go in, look for that library and then go to your security team, say, hey, I found it, or I found the affected versions. Yeah, and I, I, the thing I like about that analogy that you made with the, with the allergy is, is it also highlights, you know, something the analogy doesn't, doesn't actually do well, kind of highlights, I think, where this became a problem here is it, it's almost like for all your life, you didn't have a peanut allergy, and then all of a sudden you gained one. You know, so like you have no idea what's in your kitchen and your in your cupboard. Like you, this is not something you've ever worried about before. 
And now all of a sudden somebody tells you, you know, you could die if, if you even come into contact with, with peanuts. And, and now you've got this whole cupboard worth of stuff and, and you got to figure out what's, what's yeah, and, and that's been the current problem because, you know, if you think about systems, I mean, there's probably applications that have been sitting on disk for years that your teams may not even know. Um, it could be remnants of removed applications that wasn't really properly cleaned up. So having a software bill of material from the vendor isn't really going to help you know that you don't have it on your disk. So that was, you know, kind of the challenge that we faced at Tanium. And we said, well, hey, you know, we have the tool set to go out within a few seconds and ask a question of a million endpoints around the world and get this information back. Why don't we just extend this into software bill of materials? And that's really how the whole thing was born. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Gareth Jeremiah was one of the heads of it, pulled me in and a couple of other people, and we wrote the thing kind of just as an internal competition within Tanium. And it was so well, re well received that our CEO said, we need to make this a product. We need to build it in. And then, of course, a month later, Log4j happened. And then Apache's Commons came out. Then Commons.txt came out. Then OpenSSL. And it was almost the perfect storm that we had the tool already built as kind of a test bed just using Tanium. And it ran from there. And now it's part of our product. It's actually a bolt-on module to the product that I'm one of the product managers of called Asset. Asset. Okay. Yeah, it's good to know. Um, and one of the other things you said I, th I think is important too, even if the vendors did do it, unless it's dynamic and, and it's automatically built with every release, uh, even if a vendor did give you uh, an SBOM, you could have drift uh, with that. And then you have some cases where you know, Java, I think, is a great example. If, if you're running Java code locally, um, there's a lot of cases where you can use their JVM or JDK, or you can bring your own and, and point the product at that. You know, so in some cases, uh, that SBOM is more of like a shared responsibility, like s some of the uh, some of the components you bring to the table, some of them they bring to the table. So, you know, even if we were managing them from from the vendors, it would still be complicated. Yeah, and, and again, to your point, I mean, that's the whole idea behind Tanium is that we give the definitions to the clients. The clients then get actions from Tanium to sit down and say, hey, monitor your system constantly. So what ends up happening is the first time you lay down uh, our software bill of materials utility, it tells Index to catalog everything in the file system based on the ecosystems that we're looking for. And then what happens is we look at the, we SHA-256 hash, the binary or the the actual physical file that we found. And then out once we have that, then we start breaking it down. We start pulling apart that list of ingredients, storing it within the endpoint local database and keeping it available for research in the event that we need it. Um, we've seen, we had one developer at Tanium had over 150,000 library links inside of his machine. So just imagine trying to find that at scale. Um, it's It really becomes difficult and if, you have to react to a situation or a zero day pretty quickly, you're going to need to go in and find that information. And, and knowing that you have it is extremely powerful. I mean, just think about it. When Log4j came out, or even more, more recently, OpenSSL, if you had OpenSSL anything before version 3.0 or after and including 3.0.5, you were safe. But if you had anything in between there, you, you were potentially vulnerable and nobody knew. I mean, and that's what SBOM brought to the table was we were able to go in within a few seconds, query a million machines in your endpoint and get you the results so that you can give it over to your security teams and say, here's everything that's affected by it so that you can either use, again, another feature with Intanium, pull deploy or patch to push out the remediation for that or upgrade that application on disk. 
Hey, Roland. Uh, Tyler Shields here. I have a quick question for you. Um, you're consistently referring to SBOM in representation of libraries, dependencies, chunks of code on disk. Um, many times I hear SBOM referred to as dependencies embedded in application code itself. Can you help the audience understand the difference between, say, an application-centric SBOM, a host-based SBOM? Is there any difference, and do they provide similar and overlapping values or uh, similar and kind of adjacent well, I, values? I, I'd say the you know the the, the biggest thing is that un, until we find you know when I say on disk, what I'm really referring to is the parent file. So after that, there's all of the dependencies that could be buried all over the place. It could be in disk, it could be somewhere in a network share, and you really need to know that. So really, that's what our application does is it tells you all of those dependent libraries instead of doing an actual physical file search, because that's what kind of happened in the early days of Lock4Day. People were looking for the Lock4J-core.jar file, and they weren't able to find it because it was embedded very deep in other code. So, I mean, we're not what we're not doing in SBOM is we're not stripping apart the code. But what we are doing is we are looking at all of the dependent libraries that are linked within it. Got it. Okay. And then the other the other thing I often hear uh, mentioned alongside SBOM is uh, VEX, the vulner vulnerability exchange vulnerability yes. exploitability exchange. Um, do you have any in familiarity on VEX and what that is to educate the audience as so well? So the first thing that we decided to tackle with Tanium was finding whether or not these libraries existed. And that's really where Asset and SBOM came together. Asset's kind of our CMDB. It pulls all the information, applications that are on endpoints, all the harbor information about it. So we said, all right, now we're going to start building that repository for the library. What's coming from Tanium in about another 60 to 90 days is we're going to extend to our vulnerability scanning engine called Comply the ability to take a look at, you know, when a CVE comes in and it says, okay, if you have this library, if you have these other 10 things and, you know, a, a path to somewhere or an executable, that that comprises a security risk and you need to take remediation on that. And that's really where we're going next. It, it's, it'll be a, a, another feature within the Tanium platform. So it'll give us the ability to pivot real quickly and find that and understand whether we're exposed by those CDs or not. So what happens, Roland, when there's software applications, data, whatnot, that doesn't pass through the, end, the endpoint because that's, that's one of your strengths. So what about some of the stuff that's internal to the network may not be moving around a whole lot? How do you, how do you well, deal with that? The Tanium agent runs on basically everything that you have in your environment. It's going to run all your servers. Uh, we do run on we do run in a limited capacity on containers. We run on all your desktops. Um, you know, all of your endpoints will run in AWS or Azure, anywhere where you own or have the ability to control that that system. What we can't do is we can't sit down and say like on a cloud hosted application whether or not they have S bombs you're potentially exposed to because you just like anything else you don't have access to that system. So we give you the ability to just check your own environment. Um, the way that the Tanium agent works, there's no necessary dependency for really being anywhere other than having an internet connection. So if you have a large mobile workforce, that's not a problem for us. We can work anywhere in the world, even over satellite links. And once we send those jobs in what we call client extensions down to the Tanium endpoint, they do all the work locally and then report the data back to Tanium. And so what happened, what, what, what are companies doing with this now? Because SBOM has been a thing for a long time. 
but it's only starting to shape, take shape now, as you mentioned, the, the executive order and other things in the industry that are making it more prevalent. But what are companies actually doing with it? At present, is it more of an awareness type tool? Are they actually triaging it? How, how are they using this? So data? right now today, most of the customers that I've been involved with, um, they've got or they received the, the bill time um, SBOM reports. And after we ran in the environment, they were surprised to find how much extra they found on their desks because they just didn't know it was there. Going back to the, you can remove something, but you may not remove all the components of it. So that was really kind of the biggest thing. The next thing that they're really asking us for is the compliance piece, which is, all right, now that I know that I have that thing, how can I get rid of it? So right now, what we've seen in the industry is, you know, let me find it. If it's something that's no longer in use, I'm going to remove it. I'm going to purge it from the system. Um, if it's something that we can patch or upgrade, we'll use one of our other modules to kind of push that down to the endpoints. In fact, there's a big thing going on right now that I'm involved with where Oracle has just changed their licensing for the um, OpenJDK. And SBOM is finding it on disk where it's not necessarily listed as a traditionally installed application. So if you think about it from a Windows perspective, you know, you can look at the WMI library, you can look at the... the um, the registry, but that's not necessarily going to tell you everything that's on there. So we can find, you know, those ecosystems and executables happen to be one of the things that we also uh, take a look at. It's not just standard JAR files. I know I've talked a lot about JAR, but we look at Go, we look at Python, we look at PHP, we look at Node, um, you know, we look at all anything on a Windows machine that's a .dll or it's magic number is it identifies it as an ex executable and then we pull that thing apart and catalog it so we have just a tremendous amount of data available to us in an average scenario when when companies are able to use tanium or any other sbom tool to find these vulnerabilities I and mean, we saw with log4j as well as others that people found ways, not great ways, but, you know, in absence of these SBOM tools, found ways to understand their environments and where they were vulnerable. But in some cases, it was still taking them a really long time to upgrade, patch, change access, whatnot. So what are you seeing in terms of actual remediation? Is it taking companies days, weeks, months? I'm, I'm certain there are companies out there that haven't patched log oh, no yet. I mean, it's taken weeks and months. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, or you know, they haven't patched it because they haven't found exactly. it yet, right? Well, there is that, but I'm assuming we're talking about, you know, for for this particular question that companies have done their due diligence and they've found it because it's one thing to know about it and another thing to actually fix it, to remediate it, to close those. Yeah, so holes. I mean, we had the same challenge in the early days of Log4j coming out because you know we. We have a couple of products that were able to open up some of the jar files and read some of the data within it. But the problem was it was only a few, few layers deep. So a lot of companies did that simple investigation. They went out, they looked for the physical file that they thought was on disk. And if it was there, they got rid of it and they remediated it. And they're now shocked to find after running our SBOM, because it is runtime, that they have it in more places than they ever knew that they did because of the fact that it was buried maybe in a jar file called server.jar or server.war. And now they're going back and they're taking those remediation steps. And again, I think that's when it goes back to where our comply module comes in, is that comply is going to be able to grab those CVEs. It's going to understand what libraries that we're looking for. It's going to leverage SBOM. 
and the SBOM library data to say, okay, I have this on disk. And like I said before, I have these several indicators that say now I'm, I can be compromised. I am vulnerable. I think that's really the next big thing that the, that the industry is looking for. And that's the reason why it's under, like we have a whole team of developers right now working on that to get it out targeted potentially end of April, I was told, but I'm saying probably April or May is when we should see that start to hit the street and become a feature set now within our compliant module as well. Great, thank you. So it's, it's uh, you know, I think an interesting component of this is if people don't know what they have, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of just, just mess there that needs to be cleaned up. Um, I'm kind of curious about, uh, you know, I don't know how much roadmap you're comfortable talking about, but um, I'm just thinking of all the action items you you might want to take after you get these results back. Like, okay, when was the last time that library was used? Like, certainly, you know, I think people, and, and this is something where there's even products that all they do is they strip out all the stuff out of a container that you're not using. You know, it actually monitors the container during runtime. And if it doesn't get used, it gets stripped out, you know, and, and that gives you both the benefit of performance, better performance in that container, you know, because the size of it's smaller and, uh, and less attack surface. You know, you're stripping out functions that could potentially be vulnerable in the future uh, that, um, that, that you're clearly not using. So they don't need to need to be there. So, so where is this going? Like maybe, you know, I think this is still the first release of SBOM. Where is this going in version two? Are, are you looking into things like, you know, telling me if it's ever been used or the last time, you know, a library was actually executed? Things yeah, so like we that. already have that within the asset product uh, where we do track usage. So one of the next steps that we're looking at for SBOM is really, to your point, is it being used? What's using it? Um, there's another part of the project that's going on where we're going to try to take those jar files and tie them back to vendor-based applications, kind of doing a file evidence thing to say, okay, these 18 components equal something like IBM same time or some other some other application. Um, the next iteration of it really is after that is going to really be the easy use of building executive reports and then one-click remediation. So if you think about it, if if I found the, something that was vulnerable, either from within Azure or Comply to say, okay, I found it. And now, you know, again, using one of our other products, which is the power of our Tanium platform is you know, I don't need to go to another subsystem. I don't need to create a stub out to another application to patch that thing. I can just simply say within Tanium, okay, here it is, get rid of it, remediate it, update it, whatever I want to do to it. And that that is all definitely within our roadmap. Okay. And um, Yeah, I mean, so so I think part of this, you know, I mentioned the the part of that analogy where you you don't have the peanut allergy and you suddenly have it. Uh, are, are you seeing customers, you know, a- actually testing this function out? You know, it, se- it seemed to me, you know, you mentioned Log4j, but before that we had Equifax. You know, several years before uh, Log4Shell was an issue in Log4j, we had a perfect example of what can happen to you if you don't know how to find vulnerable libraries in your environments. Uh, Equifax uh, knew that uh, the uh, the struts, there was a serious critical struts vulnerability and they dropped everything, tried to find it in their environment, failed to find it, and then, you know, moved on to, to doing other things until that, that vulnerability was was used against them. And uh, famously, they, they had a, a pretty large breach. But uh, so I guess where I'm going with this, you know, how do, how do you see customers using this product? Is this something that they're 
you know, break glass in case of, of use or are people actively trying to, you know, make sure that they can find things with her? Are they, are they actually testing things out? Uh, well, with, I mean, you're tool? correct on struts. I mean, we even when struts came out for us, we had to write a whole bunch of sensors and packages to be able to find it on disk. And it definitely took a while to fix and remediate. What we're seeing right now in the industry, especially in like financial services or in or in FedRAMP, that they want this stuff inventory. They want to know that it's there and they want to know when a zero day comes out again within a few seconds, do I have it or not? Um, I've been telling all my customers, look, get ahead of the curve, you know, start building these catalogs on your machine. Because once I pull that cookie apart, unless you put a new cookie in the cookie jar, I don't have any reason to do that analysis again. If the hash of the file changes, we'll script it apart again and see what change in it. So if you happen to remediate it, we can now market it as remediated. Um, we do give you the ability to build executive reports so that you can show changes over time so that you can go to your CISO and say, okay, look, here's what our, our exposure was on day one. And here we are 24, 48 hours later. So really it's, it's, it's the speed. It's, it's really the speed to market and having all of that stuff in inventory. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking of it, you know, kind of from an operational perspective, like, you know, I would love to just go to one of my developers and say, hey, give me the name of something weird and obscure that we use, you know, and, and let's make a scavenger hunt out of it. See if we can find it, you know, because maybe they forgot to put Tanium on a couple systems or, you know, I, I just uh, from somebody who did disaster recovery back in the day, I know that typically unless you've actually tested it, you've maybe done 50, 60% of what, what needs to be done, you know, for it to, for it to work in the time. Yeah, of and need. it's definitely one of the other use cases. I mean, we have customers going through audits and we're looking specifically for jar files that were licensed and they didn't know where they were. So again, using SBOM because I am doing the search and I am looking, I am capturing the, the paths. I can tell you whether you have it, what machines you have it on the exact path where you can find that file. So now if you, if you have, if you're getting into a licensing scenario, you can you can know exactly where it is. And that's the reason why we're going to that file-based evidence piece as part of our future project to sit down and say, okay, this jar file equals this application, which is a commercial application, which comes with licensing costs, much like a much like we're doing right now with the um, Oracle OpenJRE issue, because they're changing their complete licensing model. Oh, so with everything coming out of the White House, you know, sometimes this is really good. It sets a great example for companies and things can take off, but sometimes they just end up being checkboxes, you know, especially when there was a new, there is a new rule or regulation. What do you think the impact on the industry is going to be? Because unfortunately, we've seen a lot of these pieces of guidance or frameworks or even regulations turn into the minimum right. viable security, right? They're checkbox requirements for compliance sake. What do you think is going to happen with this? Do you think this is going to go that way? Do you think companies are really going to embrace it as breach protection? So I would say, I mean, if you look where we were a year and a half ago with Log4j and then the rapid fire of all of these other vulnerabilities that were based on open source came out, Companies, especially, you know, financial institutions are, are really, they want to get ahead of the curve. They don't want when a new vulnerability comes out to have to spend days or weeks, or if not months, trying to find what they have in their environment. And, and that's really where we're helping them. It's kind of the preventative thing. I mean, the analogy I like to use is nobody buys a burglar alarm until after they've been burglarized. Well, in this particular case, this is your burglar alarm. We're guarding you. We're, we're putting all the rails around your environment. We're giving you the visibility 
into what you have so that when the next bad thing does get exposed, you're going to be able to remediate it way faster than any of your other competition. And you're not going to be in the news. You're not going to be the next headline about, hey, look, you know, all this information uh, got stolen from Equifax because they had a vulnerability they didn't know about. What are going to be the ramifications of this? We saw with GDPR, obviously, that they were going to implement fines, but in some cases, the fines weren't that impactful to certain types of organizations. You know, so what are going to, uh, other than, you know, hey, we hope everybody does security for security's sake, um, and we hope people do what's right, and SBOM would be one of those things, but what are going to be the penalties or the ramifications beyond Hey, keep your systems. Well, I mean, I think it's you, you got to worry about reputational, uh, you know, whether people trust you or not. I mean, a lot of people lost trust in Equifax, you know, so it's a lot more than just a monetary fine. I mean, do you as a company want to sit down and say, hey, look, because I didn't spend a little bit of money on prevention that, you know, all your personal information got leaked out. And now you're the victim of, um, you know, of identity fraud. Sorry. I, I mean, I, I don't think that's really a good example for anybody. I mean, I, I know I wouldn't. I worked in the healthcare space for 20 years before I came over here to Tanium. Now I was never a security guy. I've always been on the you know inventory and on the um, endpoint management side of the world, but I've had to deal with that where, you know, we frankly, we got breached. You know, we had a critical information or we were victims of things like ransomware where it's a real problem. So, I mean, you know, security is something everybody else takes seriously. Have you seen certain yeah, sorry, sorry, I overlapped with you there for a second. Um, are you seeing certain industries like more highly regulated industries, healthcare, you mentioned financial services, have more initial interest? Or is this one of the, you know, early adoption type things for more forward thinking tech companies? I would say of the customers that I've done POCs for, the lion's share with them either in the federal space because of the executive order. Um, financial services has always been ahead of the curve. I mean, they're, they're very, very, very security conscious. Um, it's starting to ramp up more in healthcare than it used to be. Um, healthcare has become a really big target for hackers because of that personal information. Um, you know, manufacturing is really big. We have a lot of manufacturing customers that want to know that they have this because, you know, do you really want someone taking over your plant and being able to do something with, you know, with your equipment or, you know, potentially introduce a new threat? And especially when you start going into um, utility organizations, I've represented a few of them out here in New York over the years of my, my time here with Tanium. And again, very, very, very security conscious. They wanted all the tools. They wanted to be prepared before anything ever hit. Yeah. So, so um, you know, speaking of customers doing POCs, things like that, I, I wonder if there's folks trying to DIY this either, either themselves in house or with some open source software or something like that. You know, do do you see people coming to you guys saying, "Look, it, it, this just isn't working out." Like trying to trying to build this uh, ourselves, you know, and they they want to check out your product and and see if your product can can solve well, that for them. Actually, kind of how this came to us is that we had one customer that said, hey, there's this utility out here that, you know, we think we can use, but we have too many endpoints. We got to crawl the file systems. It's incredibly inefficient. Do you guys think you can do anything better? And, you know, we sat down again, Garrett sat down and took a look at it took, you know, brought me in because of my, you know, my um, 
experience with both index and asset and our inventory management system. And we sat down and wrote the application that said, okay, we can do this at scale and at speed. So when we did our initial POCs, customers were shocked that with 150,000 endpoints around the world that within few hours, they can get all the respond information and they can start hunting and finding what they're looking for. And that was really a game changer because if it was something that you were building one off, I mean, it just imagines individually deploying an application, scanning every machine, collating all of that data, getting it together. And you're a worldwide organization. You have offices all around the planet. You know, it, it becomes a daunting task. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So challenge accepted. You know, the next thing that we're really going for, and this is another part of the future project, is customers are now asking us to say, hey, can you build us a bill of materials? Like for a particular application, can you sit down and give me what all of the libraries are? And that's, and there's like three or four different industry standards. And that's what we're starting to also take a look at is like, okay, now that I have it, I think we're better than a build time tool because of the fact that we know, we can see everything on disk and put together those dependencies and say, yeah, here's everything that you have that can supplement what you're getting in your from your build time tool. Yeah. Right. Source of truth, right? That's how Tenium always looked at ourselves is that we yeah. want to be the ultimate source of truth. And then we can feed it to whatever third-party system that you want, or we can just keep it all internally, you know, through our integrations with, you know, other providers. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff, Roland. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Enterprise Security Weekly today. This has been uh, enlightening. Pleasure being here. Uh, and if anybody's got any, any other questions, I'm more than happy to answer them. Awesome. All right, make sure you visit securityweekly.com forward slash Tanium to learn more and stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to talk product-led growth and building products in cybersecurity with Ross Hallelujah from Lima Charlie. Managing and protecting the world's grueling number of endpoints, enabling Tanium's customers to see, control, and protect every endpoint everywhere. Tanium's mission is to provide certainty in uncertain times with the industry's only converged endpoint management. Trusted by the U.S. military and the majority of the Fortune 100, Tanium helps manage and protect nearly 30 million endpoints. Tanium, the power of certainty. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Tanium to learn more. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Join us at an upcoming official cybersecurity summit in a city near you. This series of one-day, invitation-only, executive-level conferences are designed to educate senior cyber professionals on the latest threat landscape. We are pleased to offer our listeners $100 off admission when you use code SECWEEK23 to register. That's S-E-C-W-E-E-K-2-3. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash cybersecurity summit to learn more and register today. All right. For our next interview, Ross Hallelujah joins us today to talk about product-led growth, about building cybersecurity products. And depending on how the conversation goes, we could go down all sorts of different paths like angel investing, how to build a successful newsletter, what a cyber collective is. This guy does all kinds of cool stuff. Welcome to the show, Ross. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Yeah, and we're, we're happy to have you here. Uh, you definitely you know, popped up a lot, I, I think, on, on all of our radars with a lot of the work that you do. I started following your newsletter, seeing some of your posts on LinkedIn, 
you know, LinkedIn has just become this great place uh, for conversation that I think a lot of the conversations I used to have on, on Twitter, you know, maybe are on LinkedIn or maybe they're different conversations. But, um, but yeah, you, you know, maybe we should start with how you got uh, into security in the first place because you haven't always been in security, right? I haven't always been in security. And in fact, uh, I am one of the not too many people who cannot make a statement that I, you know, I have 20 plus years of experience in the industry. So uh, I have been in product management for quite a long time, uh, probably about 10 plus years. And uh, I have had the chance to work across a number of different industries. So I was in fintech, in e-commerce, retail, wholesale. And then a couple of years ago, uh, a co-founder of Lima Charlie has reached out and was like, hey, uh, this is what we are building and we would like to have you join us ahead of product. And so at the time, I, I mean, my, my exposure to security has, has been fairly limited. And what I ended up doing, I had a fantastic conversation with the founder and then I went home and I started, I started looking into the industry, trying to understand how it functions, what are the different players. And ultimately after a couple of hours of research, I went back to him and said, you know what? I'm not doing this. This is insane. And so, the reason the reason that happened was because you know for somebody coming from the outside of the industry just looking at the space and trying to make sense of all the acronyms all the abbreviations all the mdrs ndrs xdrs sim source and on and on and on was just way too overwhelming but as you can as you can see i ended up going back on my decision and here i am today after a couple of years in the industry i love the space and i i really really enjoy being here so, so somehow, so how, what was it? Do you, like, okay, how much money do you need? Like, how, how did he talk you into it after you were like, heck uh, no. No, so you see, it wasn't really about money. It was more so that uh, like I started looking, uh, looking a bit more into the space. And what I came to realize is that one, the industry is growing rapidly. And two, as much as I have always seen my background that is, you know, not as much as I have seen, you know, the absence of the strong security background a weakness at the time, and and there are still cases when you know, like my my ability to to comprehend a certain technical topic is limited. But I did also see the strength and the I guess the advantage of coming from a different space and having a different lenses on on product in particular. So it was it was a bit of a. It was a process of me convincing myself that yes, you know, I can do it, and this is interesting. And honestly, I think it has been the best, like one of the best decisions in my career. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the chaos is one of the things that I can't speak for Katie or Tyler, but uh, that draws me to it. You know, I was diagnosed with ADHD later in life. You know, in my late thirties. Uh, but when I was diagnosed, it made a lot of things clear to me. And, uh, yeah, I just, uh, on the market side, things are happening all the time uh, on the, you know, threat side, you know, defense, os offense, everything, you know, it's just the never ending flow uh, of stuff to learn and understand, which is, which is what drew me towards it. Yeah, there is that. But frankly, I think the other thing that really, really, uh, became apparent to me after some time in the industry is just that the number of people who come into this space 
for motives other than money is actually much higher than in many other industries. For example, when you work in fintech, like you're primarily running into people who came who came into fintech because you know the pay is good and and there is there is a certain uh, size of the market opportunity. But when you when you work in cybersecurity, you meet people day after day who ended up in security because that's the passion of theirs. That's something like they, they have that sense of mission, sense of community, sense of uh, purpose and sense of service that you don't see in, in many other spaces. Yeah, mission. So you mission mentioned, obviously, you came in from the outside to a degree and you just talked about people coming into the industry because they're mission driven, they're purpose driven. What would you say for you when you were, quote, convincing yourself that this was a good role, what were some of the qualities that think served you well to come back here? And what do you think are some of the qualities as companies are looking for more diversity and inclusion that they should be looking for? Because I think you make a really great point about sometimes it's actually better to come with an outside perspective because you see something with fresh eyes. You don't know the limitations. You don't know the guardrails. You don't know necessarily, you don't have those, you know, the, those tints on your glasses that would make you say, eh, we shouldn't do this. So what are some of those qualities that that helped you succeed and that you see in others that you say, hey, hey, bring those to the industry? Uh, that That is a fantastic question. And I think the number one would, prob would probably be just having the natural curiosity and, and the ability to ask questions. And then having the humbleness to admit that one, you don't know everything, but two, the boundaries of your knowledge are actually much, much more narrow than than they are for many other people coming with, with, with the domain expertise. So to me, the number one thing that has allowed me to learn and, and grow uh, a lot over the past couple of years was really just the ability to ask questions and say, hey, you know what, I tell me more. And I know, like some people, some people at Lima Charlie make fun of of me because that's really the quote I like. That's the phrase I end up saying uh, way too often. Tell me more. Like, hey, you know, I like this part of the product experience is painful. Tell me more. Like, why is it painful? Like, what problem are you trying to solve here? So, to me, is this frankly just the ability to to ask questions, uh, be transparent about what you know, be transparent about what you don't know. And that really wins people's trust. Like when you, you know, when, when people don't try to pretend that they are any deeper into, into, into a certain domain area than they actually are. That, that's great. I, I do want to rephrase what you said, and I know it's what you said, and it's your thought, but I want to pose it a different way and see if maybe this is true. Because you said you have to admit when you have a narrow set of knowledge. But I think what you meant is that you have a narrow set of knowledge in one in area. That, yes, in that in that specific specific area. Yeah, right. well, it's broad across number of different areas and domains. But it's it's really it's really this beginner's mindset in this specific field. In which case, for me, it was cybersecurity. Yeah, and I think that's important to call out. And the reason I did is because you bring things that somebody who's worked in security their whole life may not. You know, and that could be true for a lot of other people. And, and since we're such a growing industry and we have so many seats to fill, transferring your knowledge from another industry, from another role within a company could be extremely valuable if you, like you say, are humble enough and inquisitive enough to, to apply your skills to a different 
area and accept that you're not going to be the smartest person in the room. And and exactly, and and that's okay. And I guess the other thing that I would probably highlight is, uh, hmm, what was I about to say? Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, it's uh, well. So not I guess not not being not being the smartest person in the room, but also ah, uh, yeah. You know what? It just it just left one of those things. <laughs> It'll come to you at four in the morning. It's okay. Yeah. So so yeah. I just just another comment on, on what you guys are talking about. You know, when I became an industry analyst and started to talk to seven, eight vendors a week, you know, and take all these briefings, you know, one of the things I noticed is that they would get kind of trapped in this bubble of their own language, their own messaging, you know, to where, you know, and, and it's one of the things that you know, I think took you aback when you first looked at the industry. It, it sounds like Ross is, is communication is so hard here. And, I just had to get used to asking all kinds of questions. Like I, I still remember when I started on uh, to do marketing, uh, and, and this is years and years ago. You know, my my first marketing stint for for a startup, and they they were talking about POVs, and I I'd never heard the the proof of value uh, acronym. Like we had always said proof of concept, so it was POCs. And um, first time I heard that for the first couple of days, you know, after two days, I was like. What are you guys talking about? Because to me, it's point of view. Like every time I hear POV, I, I'm I'm translating it in my head as as point of view. So I I had to learn very quickly, like not to be shy about asking questions, you know. And I found out crazy stuff, like uh, you know, terms that you thought were simple, you know, that had simple definitions, like uh, east, west, and north, south, in in terms of uh, networking inside a a network architecture or an organization. There are like five, six different definitions for north, south, and east, west, depending on who you're talking to. So you have to clarify what you mean when you start using a lot of these terms. Yeah, and 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 the other thing that I would probably highlight is uh, whoever comes in, like whether they come in from a different industry or even within the same industry, but just move into the different market segment, like they have to have the willingness to put in the work, and like that. Nobody, nobody can really replace that need because at the end of the day, like you have to understand what the customer's problems are. You have to understand what, what like how they're doing their work. You have to understand the dynamics in the industry at the level at which it is necessary for you to do your job. Like if you do product, it's it's very different than if you are a sales engineer or than if you are a marketer. But in any case, you have like you have to do it. And for me, one of the things and probably one of the reasons why initially I said uh, no to joining Lima Charlie was because I, I don't like doing things halfway. Like in my in my in my previous life when I was in fintech for example, like three months after joining the, the fintech uh, company that built uh, products for mortgage brokers, I became a licensed mortgage broker. So for me there was there was this innate understanding that I want like I want to understand the industry not just you know not just uh I guess not just horizontally and like what are the different players and how it works, but also vertically. Like how does how how does it look like to underwrite a mortgage from the moment when somebody comes into into the doors of the mortgage broker to the moment when somebody walks in with their mortgage approved and their money in the bank account. So and in the same like in the same way like when I when I started at Lima Charlie like I bought like like somewhere between like forty and sixty books 
just reading about the space, reading about the industry, like looking at like super technical and less technical areas. Uh, like I did this Security Plus certification, which again, for a cybersecurity professional, it's like it's the level of basics that nobody would even mention. But for me, coming coming out of, out of the industry, like it was actually quite useful. So there is like the, there is a lot of that where like you have to put in the work, you have to talk to people, you have to ask questions, and you like you can't necessarily uh, do it within your like. A, traditional work week like if you're coming if you're new to the industry you have to do much much more for you to get up to speed quickly and, and you really do sound like you you know your stuff like i i was shocked to find out that you've only been in this industry for a couple of years uh and, and there's a couple of folks i've run into like that that just pick it up so quick you know they they you know i i can't tell them from somebody <clears throat> who's who's been in the industry uh for for 20 years hey can i ask a question um ross I got a chance to meet you a while back when you interviewed me for a, a piece on um, yeah. uh, investing, investing in uh, cyber. And your piece was absolutely fantastic. Deep, strong journalistic research. I want to ask, like, you seem to have a very innate ability to get up to speed on a topic very quickly and understand it thoroughly, not just at a surface level, exactly like you described. Is there a certain amount of right, the way that writing may help you solidify that in your brain. Is that something you think that helps you kind of that the writing and the creation of content helps you get up to speed on areas faster? It does. It does. And honestly, I think, I think writing has, has helped me tremendously, tremendously well. Uh, I, like I am, uh, you know, this, this might sound super buzzwordy, but I am a big, uh, like I'm a big believer in what Jeff Bezos, I think he described it as uh, nobody can like nobody can write a seven like six or seven pager about the business problem and not know what they're talking about. That's why yeah. like I personally I do not like slides. I do not like slides like slide decks. They they mean nothing to me. Like it's just a bunch of numbers and 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 nice pictures for me. Like writing is first and foremost the ability to kind of crystallize my own thinking, refine my own thinking, and build that mental model of whatever problem I am looking at. And it's and and it's only a secondary that I end up publishing some of the stuff that I, I actually work on. Like and really for me, like writing didn't start as the you know as the desire to just you know have have a blog about cybersecurity. Like that that hasn't been the case for me. Writing is ju just a byproduct of me being. Uh, saying, hey, uh, there are some parts of the industry that I don't necessarily get exposure to as a part of, you know, as a part of Lima Charlie or as a part of me being at the head of product. But I'm still interested in those in, in, in those areas of the industry. Like, for example, with you, like Tyler, we talked about like we talked about the industry analyst space, which to mm -hmm. me. I, I, I know a couple of industry analysts, but I don't have, like, I've never been one. So I don't have that deep, deep understanding of, of the dynamics and how, how it functions. Like, what are the different incentive systems? What are the different, like, what are the different players in this space? And so a lot of that research I end up just doing on my own, but, but quite a bit of it comes from, from like conversations with people and asking, asking questions saying, mm -hmm. Hey, I don't know how, how this works, but I want to build that. I want to build that mental model. So writing 100%, yeah. it's, 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 yeah. a, it's a super powerful tool. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. It's one of the reasons I write the cyber why, and I'm sure that's why you write venture and security. And I'd, I would uh, recommend that everybody, um, all the listeners, please go subscribe to venture and security. You're going to get the, the pieces that come out are deep tech pieces better than you find at many, many analyst firms. They're very, very strong pieces. And I felt like, 
a big portion of where you that's where you how you learn and i can almost see that in in the way you work um you know follow on question that i do want to dig in for a second on um kind of the other projects right because you're here representing lima charlie but you also have um you have the venture and security um um uh sub stack um and you're doing other things as well can you tell us a little bit about um what your favorite project is your passion project maybe uh, I feel like I feel like they they all are at, at different like in different ways. So uh, I started a blog about a year, I think, uh, j just a bit over a year ago, and it ended up growing. Like it ended up starting as something that I just did, you know, for to share some of my research and some of my thinking, and it grew into something that I did not quite anticipate at the beginning. And so after having a couple of thousand people read and and seeing the numbers keep growing by 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 a few hundred people like all, almost every week what i came to understand is i just i simply cannot stop so i like i'm i'm continuing on and on like trying to publish like one one piece a week uh which is my weekend project and then i have an early morning project too where i you know i am a bit crazy that way i i wake up i wake up at 6 and then from 7 to 9 it's my like it's the time when i when i do something else and that's something else at this point is is an angel syndicate so i just just announced uh, an angel syndicate for uh, cybersecurity practitioners where the intent is to bring together uh, people working in the industry primarily as practitioners and uh, make essentially help shape the future of the industry by making bets on the companies on on the early stage cybersecurity startups that are more more like practitioner focused and and we can talk about the i guess the practitioner focused part bit uh, a bit later because that that will tie in into into this conversation about plg uh but yeah i think so uh, like at this point i'm doing a couple of things so uh like the angel syndicate really starting to you know like there is a lot of paperwork and a lot of bureaucracy and and a, a lot of prep work that needs to happen but uh, anticipating that sometime uh, probably closer to uh the end of april the beginning of may uh, we'll be able to start looking at some at some early stage companies like at this point just talking to a bunch of security practitioners uh some of them uh, are from my network and others who have reached out and say hey you know i want to be a part of it and then uh uh, blog is just it's 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 a weekly ongoing thing. Uh, Lima Charlie is the main area of focus, and I am a big like in, a, a big champion and a big believer into uh, into the approach we are taking and and what we are trying to do in the industry. And lastly, uh, the 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 other uh, small initiative that I have I have been trying to get off the ground, and so far like the the response has been absolutely uh, tremendous. Is uh, what I call a building cyber collective, which is really just a like it's a place where we try to match, uh, well, not really match, but bring together a cybersecurity startups, like early stage cybersecurity startups and people from the industry who are uh, interested in acting as advisors and and let them connect via the double opt-in system. So just to eliminate the potential sales pitch and, and, and you know, spam, uh, it's double opt-in. So a startup, for example, can say, hey, you know, Tyler, uh, I see you're an expert in, in cybersecurity product marketing. Or like I see you've been an analyst. Like we really need an advice around this. This you know the, the question X. Would it be okay to uh, to to share that advice? Then you will get an email saying, Hey Tyler, 
this is what they're looking for. Are you interested? If you say yes, a double opt-in email goes out. So it's a very low key, like very low tech initiative. Uh, again, like not like purely a community effort. So no, no money involved whatsoever, uh, similar to the blog. Uh, and uh, so far, like we've had, we had about 120, 130 uh, advisors uh, join. And then at this point, uh, just a bit over 60 startups. So. Uh, no expectation, just just trying to add value and, and connect people who may be helpful to one another. Man, I, I wish I had your energy. You know, you're seeing these opportunities, you're, you're going after them, and it's, uh, you know, and, and it's all kind of, it seems like it's all kind of connected too. You know, and that that's what I've noticed with uh, with a lot of the things that I do. I, I, I do a lot of stuff as well, though I'm not, I'm not creating uh, some of the cool stuff that, that you are. Like this, this podcast is already going. You are creating. Yeah. You know, you are creating quite a bit, like not only this podcast, but I remember when we met at the conference, like you were talking about some of the research that you were doing into, into different, into like the, the other side of the industry that, so it's, it's, it's quite, it's quite interesting, but you're, you're being too humble. So, and maybe one more question um, on, on while we're talking about creating and, and, and being, uh, I guess you could call us creators, you know, that though that brings up uh you know, thoughts of uh, people who stream on, on Twitch and things like that. But, um, you know, enterprise creators, maybe corporate create creators. I, I don't know the right term there. But do you worry about, um, you know, because I'm, I'm sure you write blog posts and things like that for Lima Charlie also. You know, now that I've started a new role and I'm going to be responsible for creating a, a lot of content. Like, like, how do you worry about that creative well going dry? Or, you know, have you, have you, is there anything that you do to kind of reset your brain, you know, and, and you know, keep those ideas flowing, or is that just not an issue that you have? Uh, I mean, honestly, what I found is, well, uh, one, I, I think, I think my my biggest challenge has been not so much the creative. Well, my biggest challenge has been uh, like compartmentalizing things. So you see, like I, I lead product at Lima Charlie, and so obviously I would like Lima Charlie to succeed. However. It, I have to try really hard to make sure that that doesn't overflow into my content because like, uh, like it's, it's entirely separate. It's my weekend project. I, I don't write about Lima Charlie. I, I don't inject it like whether it's necessary or not just because I work there. So it's those like, frankly, I think that managing, like keeping those mental lines around the con potential conflict of interest and just like advocating for something for, and being biased, I think that has been much harder than uh, than uh, than uh, as you've said, like the the, the creative part. Uh, regarding creativity, I think a lot of it comes down to the discipline, much more so than just being creative. And I, I I'm curious if Tyler can relate because like his Cyberwire newsletter has been one of the things that I read weekly. And <laughs> unlike Tyler, I don't actually release venture and security on a certain day. So I like I sometimes give myself a flexibility of saying, hey, you know what? Like next week I will do it on, you know, on Wednesday versus Monday. And so like I, I still have those extra, extra few evenings where I can, you know, do some do some tweaks and stuff. But Tyler is being is being from what I from what I've observed is being very precise and he releases CyberWire on Friday. And so there is much more discipline that probably goes into into his writing. I wish I wish I could say it was more disciplined. Um, I definitely have once or twice in the last handful of months had a, had had it slip to a Sunday or even a Monday. But in general, I try to release every Friday. But for me, it's interesting. One thing that caught my ear, and I know we're kind of on a weird topic for this for this podcast, but I'm gonna keep going. Um, one thing that caught my ear is how you like to compartmentalize. I'm the opposite. 
I want all of my projects to actually tie together and in an ideal world, leverage additional value as we go through each thing. So for example, um, uh, I have to be careful what I say here from an investment vantage point, but if like, I have certain ideas from an investment vantage point, I might research them and write them publicly in my thoughts on, on CyberY as I'm trying to research kind of where I want to put money from an investment vantage point. So um, there's lots of different ways you can um, tie it in or not tie it in. For me, I like to keep everything super interconnected. Interesting. So, see, for me, I think I I, I I see where you're coming from. And frankly, I think when I say compartmentalize, I, I probably use the wrong word. Like it's more so about like managing that conflict, like potential conflict of interest between between different yeah. things I'm doing. Uh, but yeah, I, I totally agree. Like for me, it has it has primarily been around around uh, the, the business side of the industry, the investment side of the industry, the, the product and then having this more of a practitioner focus that really tie into what we do at Lima Charlie. It ties into like how we build product at Lima Charlie. It ties into like a lot of the topics that I end up researching and writing about. Because, you know, like if you like, let's just say if you're a VC, you probably know quite a bit around about the, the space of industry analysts. But if you're a security practitioner, you might not even suspect that they exist or might not, you might have your own assumptions about, you know, like, to what degree their objective and so on. So it's, there is that tie-in, there is that commonality and like the common underlying uh, foundation, but there is the complexity around like, hey, you know, this is the blog, like I'm looking at the future of the industry. And, you know, even though like, for example, something we do at Lima Charlie, it might very well tie in, but I'm not just going to, like I, I whenever possible, I, I, and whenever it makes sense, I also make a disclaimer saying that, hey, like this part might not exactly be objective because like I believe it and I leave it at, at my work. So there is, it, that's, that's more what I meant. Gotcha. Yeah, so so let's uh, let's move on to product-led growth. You know, it's it's definitely uh, you know speaking of of writing and content. You know, there there have been uh, there's been a lot out there um, in uh, in the last couple of years. You know, certainly recently. You know, I know on, on CyberY, I, I I very much enjoyed uh, the. You know, there, there's, uh, I think Tyler, you posted yours first, and then you po posted uh, somebody wrote a. Uh, a retort to it or, or was it the other way around but uh no i posted, but, I posted mine first and then steve lachance contacted okay. me because we had he was the one that inspired the original post about how plg is, doesn't fit for cyber and he, he said hey i want to clap back on that and i said sounds awesome let's see if we can do a debate piece and so he actually wrote the yeah. second piece nice yeah i yeah, you so, know so I, I, I was like no, no yeah for, for listeners let's just uh let's define it you know like the make it sense for folks who aren't familiar with product-led growth and, and just start there. So I have about, how about I, I, I offer something else. How about we talk about it? Like we, we talk about like, I, I'm super happy to talk about the way I see it without using the word product-led growth or words PLG or any sort of, you know, marketing or product terms whatsoever. And then, because you see, like my, my complexity is that any conversation around PLG is like is can get out of hand super quickly. So if we can if we can have a more more of a high level conversation, it might get easier. Yeah, no, let's do it. Did Did you want yeah, to start so, off, or you want me to start? Okay, I'm I'm happy to. Yeah. So when I uh, like I guess before before talking about about the the, the specific go to market strategy, uh, let me just state a couple of observations that I have made about the industry and and 
then we can we can quickly discuss those uh, and challenge some of them if makes sense and from there talk about the 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 the, the go to market so i I see several things. One, I see that the number of, of cybersecurity vendors is rapidly growing. I see that CISOs are overwhelmed with the number of vendors, with the number of startups uh, trying to compete for their attention and trying to get them into a demo. I also see that CISOs, and I recognize that CISOs were not hired uh, to shop for tools. Like their job is to build the, the, the company's security strategy, work on the stakeholder alignment, like work with boards, with executive teams, uh, like build teams and so on and so forth. I also see that more and more security practitioners are starting to spend time like playing with tools, setting up different, different uh, security tooling in their home labs, trying what's out there, seeing what's, what's active, uh, like staying active in the community and so on. And I also see that more and more CISOs are, at least in some of the conversations I had, uh, are saying that they tend to take recommendations uh, from their from for, for new tooling from their teams. So, for example, you know, uh, uh, a security practitioner coming in and saying, "Hey, Adrian, I know we are looking for X uh, to you know to solve a specific problem in our company." So I've been playing with this tool and it seems to do what we need. How about we take a look? So that's that's really like those are some of the observations that I I, I have I have seen. And I, I wonder, like uh, from your perspective, would you say that they're true or are some of them that that uh, raise a red flag and we want to we want to yeah, kind but, of dig deeper into Yeah, so let me talk about it from a buyer's perspective, because I, I was a buyer for a long time and, and just come at it from, from the total opposite end of it and, and what I was seeing. Um, so, you know, we either we, well, you know, one of the biggest reasons we were buying stuff, uh, I, I started my career at a large payment processor and I was there when PCI came out. So obviously PCI forced us to do a bunch of things that we may not have been doing already. <laughs> so we needed to buy some tools. We needed to, to do a lot of work to get into compliance with those. You know, I think it was like 250 requirements then. Now it's more than 300 requirements. And, you know, it, it would take, I remember shopping for a SIM and, it, it, you know, it would take three or four sales calls before I'd see a demo, before I'd ever even see the product. It would take an, another three or four sales calls before we could get a proof of concept of the product. Uh, I remember we did a um, uh, shootout between four different SIM products and they sent sales engineers on site to set up these proof of concepts. We gave each of them five days. Only one of them worked at all, like, like up and operational and, and we could actually log into it after those five days. And that's the one we ended up buying. We, we, we didn't buy it because it was great. We brought it because it was the only one that worked. Their, their own SEs, their own sales engineers were not able to get the other three products from those other three vendors, even functional. And, you know, this is, this is back 2004, 2005. But, you know, I, I still see that today where you're just required to do so much work, you know, and, and too often at the end of all that work to see the product, to test out the product, it's just underwhelming. You know, it's like, yeah. why, why is this hidden, you know, behind so much secrecy? Why is there so much friction, you know, yeah. just to figure out if I'm wasting my time, you know, and then, and then on the sales and marketing side, you know, it, it's, it's just, uh, 
you know, the SDRs, I, I don't know if any SDRs enjoy what they do, but, you know, for me, receiving cold calls and emails and LinkedIn stuff, like it's, it's unwanted. It, it's painful. It seems painful for them as well. Cause they're just, they're hearing no all day long, you know, just trying to get their, their quota of meetings set up, you know, and, and sometimes people just give in, you know, just, just to make people stop calling, to make people stop emailing, you know, they, they don't even yeah. want the product. They're not a qualified lead. You know, they, they just want the pain to, to, to stop. So yeah. when I saw, when I became aware of like the product led growth, you know, uh, I mean, the first big thing I saw with that was, was Linux, right? You know, Linux was just anybody could go use it. You could figure out what it was good for, what it wasn't good for. And, and, and yeah, it, it just made me think, like, why would anybody do it any other way? Yeah. No, 100%. And frankly, this is like, this is precisely the reason why, like I, I wanted for, for us to start the conversation by just looking at the, at, at the fundamentals, like what we see in the industry. And to me, the reason it is important is because normally when you hear the word PLG, it's technically like, it's, it's always somebody who just comes in and says, oh my God, there is that new big thing. Like, look, like the Silicon Valley is buzzing around PLG. How about we, we implement it in our company? And then there goes this entirely unreasonable and, and frankly, quite dumb uh, directive somewhere from the top saying, hey, you know, marketing people, product people, let's make our company PLG. And to me, this is where, and this is, uh, you know, and th this is where, like, I do agree with Tyler that there, there are quite a few companies that are not going to be suitable for it. And so for me, the company that wants to, like, like again, let, let, let's push. Like let's let's once again push PLG aside. So, what can a reasonably a reasonable and a well-run company do in the conditions we've just described, where the market fundamentals are that you know for startups getting CISOs into a call, it's not is is hard, and frankly, it's not a viable strategy. Uh, and and product if product can appeal to practitioners, there is potentially a way they can sell it you know to their management and kick off this the, the more traditional sales process that way so in my mind the reasonable company would start by understanding their customers understanding who are they uh, what do they care about where do they hang out understanding the buying process how do they buy who is involved in those decisions how do different sides contribute to the to that process what influence do they have and if uh, understanding if somebody in that buying process has a strong opinion about technology, is there somebody that has built a habit of potentially evaluating different tools, or maybe somebody who can build that build that habit if they don't have uh, if, then, if they don't yet have it? Like, what are the different incentives that come into play? So for me, all of those questions they are important because they inform a company, they inform the strategy, and they make it clear what is possible and what's not, what's not possible. Like for example, if, a, if, a, if a, a person evaluating the security product is a compliance manager, it's less likely that they will go out and try a new tool because there is less culture of, of doing so than there is, for example, if you look at the security architect who like literally can live in the open source world. Or if a hypothetical buyer is a developer, uh, would they buy a security product? 
Well, it sounds theoretically possible because they're the ones already looking at different technical solutions. But 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 developers like they don't want to do security; they want to code. So the developer is not going to 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 go out of their way to find a, a great security product. Sometimes they do, but in most cases they don't. So to me, uh, the the fundamental challenge with PLG is. Uh, somebody like somebody comes in and says, "Okay, you know what? There is this big thing. Let's become PLG because we want everybody to to sign up, to put in their credit card, and start paying." But fundamentally, that's like that's not how security products are purchased today, and that's not how they will be purchased. Like nobody is going to take an endpoint solution uh, and deploy it across like one hundred thousand uh, endpoints because it's it's not how security products are purchased. There is. Uh, a high reliance on trust. Like you, you have to know what the product does. You have to know how the product is built. You have to know, like you have to have a level of certainty that the company is going to be around tomorrow. Uh, there is, th there's just too many things that come into place. So when I think about PLG in the context of cybersecurity, and now I, I'm happy to reintroduce that term back, uh, I think about being practitioner focused and looking for ways to make it easier for people to, to, to try what you do. However, not everybody can accomplish it, and that's okay. So not everybody should, should be trying to, to, to strive for it. That's, that's, like, that's some of my thinking, but I have much more on that topic. Yeah. So to me, what you're describing is very akin to persona-based marketing, right? So you have to know your customer, you have to know some data around them, not just who they are, but where they are, what their habits are, what the typical type of buyer, what they like, what they don't like. So does that mean with a good product-led growth initiative that you have to almost have different experiences, whether that's a product tour or a demo or whatever the case may be. Does that mean that you have to have multiple ones of those? Because most companies don't have one single persona who's their buyer. That I guess that's that's one of the ways uh, we we can talk about it. And uh, I don't like again. I think like even without bringing the 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 buzzword, the PLG buzzword into the conversation, uh, on my, like in my mind, from my experience, it is reasonable to say that, hey, uh, different types, of, like different people discover our product in different ways. So let's find a way to get in front of them. For some, let's just say, like maybe one of the personas uh, who could potentially benefit from our product is is a security engineer or is is somebody who is more likely to, you know, to, to try and see what, what the tool does. Well, then the question becomes: How do we get in front of them? Maybe there are some. Maybe there are some CTF competitions we can uh, we can we can uh, expose our product at, or maybe there are some uh, some practitioner focused training events that we can do. So the one thing that is not going to work, and like whether we are talking about cybersecurity or or any other industry, is just building a cool product, creating a self sign up flow, and just hoping that somebody. Somebody will start like flocking into into the product and 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 and, and adopting it. Uh, to your point, uh, what are the other types of people who could uh, who could uh, who could adopt what we do? Like, how can they get exposed to it? Uh, how can how can the the leadership get exposed to what we do? There, there is a different channel, and so the I guess the the, the concept of the of the persona based marketing does tie into the overall conversation about how do we grow the business? And to me, 
that's that's the number one thing that that people need to answer. Not how do we become PLG, but what works for our specific industry, what works for our specific market segment, and how do we how do we do more of what works and don't do the stuff that doesn't? It sounds very basic, but but so many just so many companies you see, like read some articles saying PLG is great. And they jump into it. They get like they 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 fire their marketing department. They reshape their sales team. They bring somebody else in. And it's like, why why are you doing this? Like, why don't you start by understanding what can work for you? And I, I feel like there's another ingredient here uh, that I've seen at least in examples of people who do PLG well. And it's not PLG specific, but. If you're going to go the PLG route, you have to do these things well. Your your product, at least, you know, for it to work well for you, your product has to be easy to implement. It has to be fairly easy to use. It's got to be like if you think of a a consumer product, you know, the the amount that people will rip to shreds a five dollar app in the app store versus what people are willing to put up with with, with a million dollar appliance or, or enterprise SaaS service is amazing to me that there's just absolutely no patience for a product that that isn't uh, well polished you know with, with consumer facing stuff uh, you, the, the budgets are different the, the the economics are different you know but then you see somebody spend a million dollars on something and it doesn't even work and it's just like like you know that that's four out of ten things that they buy it seems. Yeah, no, I have been looking a lot at the question around product management in general in cybersecurity. Like, even if we, like, if you don't look at the PLG, uh, like cybersecurity, I'm not going to say that cybersecurity is the only industry that has some, some unique characteristics because that is not the case. If you look at biotech, if you look at defense, if you look at, like, if you look at automotive, like every industry functions a bit differently. It has, it has some unique characteristics, but so does cybersecurity. And so, in cybersecurity, the different types of customers have entirely different needs. So in some spaces, for example, like in many industries, what defines an enterprise version of the product versus like the SMB versus the product for the personal use is the presence of you know, access management, SSO for better or for worse, maybe access to the audit logs and, and like access to the API. In cybersecurity, on the other hand, what a regular person needs versus what the SMB needs versus what an enterprise needs are entirely three different things. And so you have those, you have those differences. Most of cybersecurity is enterprise sales. Most of the products are in inherently hard to evaluate. Uh, the degree to which buying a, a product relies on trust is much higher than it is in many other spaces because not only it is hard to empirically evaluate what the tool does today, but also you have to you have to take a leap of faith that this tool is going to be there tomorrow against an entirely unknown threat that you cannot even forecast the existence of today. So there, there are many ways in which cybersecurity is, is, is a fairly unique space and companies uh, trying to define a go-to-market strategy, like they, they have to account for it. Like whether they're, they're trying to take a pillager out or not, uh, it's like it's just like the fundamentals of understanding your market and understanding the customer. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Tyler, I'd love to get your thoughts here, but I, I feel like a lot of, uh, and, and you too, Katie, 
a, a lot of what we're talking about isn't necessarily specific to product-led growth. Like a lot of the stuff we've talked about, you know, uh, uh, understanding your ICP, you know, the, the personas, who you're selling to, what they, what they actually need, uh, understanding the customer, like, like that's just important, period. You know, wh- whether you want to build a large outbound sales and marketing program or have, have none of that and, and do entirely PLG, like, I feel like a lot of the qualities we're talking about are just things that you need to do. Like, like you need to fundamentally build a good product that, that's easy to use, you know, isn't terribly buggy and, and is easy for people to, to get up and working with. And also just understanding what the product is. As an industry analyst, I can't tell you how excited I would get sometimes when I could find a screenshot of the product. Like, like best day ever. If I can find a screenshot of the product, I can better understand what it does. And for some companies, it's incredibly hard. Like, forget a demo. Forget freemium or, or like, actually running it in my environment. Just seeing a screenshot of what the UI looks like uh, is a huge challenge for some of these companies for me. <coughs> Sorry, I coughed right into that ending. Um, I totally agree with you. You know, I, I, I think all in all, if we look at the bulk of the startup, small to mid-sized businesses in cybersecurity, most of them, most of them are two people in a garage, right? Two tech people with a great idea, get some seed funding because there's so much money sloshing around. Still, even in the downturn, there's so much money sloshing around cyber that they come up with an idea, they, they create a little bit of traction and get themselves a bunch of money. And then they say, okay, great. Now, what's our market? What's our position? What's our message? How do we do the GTM? Vast majority of the younger companies I talk to have no idea how to build yep. a go-to-market. They just don't. It's just not something they're, they're they've been product people their whole lives. Their previous CISOs now creating a product, and they just don't understand how to build the business. And I think it's a massive gap in our market. And I don't know if that's unique to our market or if that's high tech, high growth in a general sense of the word. But there's definitely a gap for um, that type of skill set. It's one of the skill sets that that my firm tends to bring to the table for those younger companies is that that go to market experience. I think you've you've sort of hit the nail on the head, and I think the misconception of product-led marketing is that, oh, you just let the product speak for itself. That's not what product-led growth is. That's not what it means. You have to have an understanding of your market and how to reach people. But the reality is now versus 10 years or 20 years ago, people are spending months ahead of time doing their own research before they want to talk to a salesperson. You know, I used to be in sales and you could actually call people and you'd get people on the phone. Uh, I don't think you can do that anymore. Nobody wants to talk on the phone. Sending emails is not super effective. You know, I know when we get emails within our company for people soliciting us, that sometimes people will post them and make jokes about just how bad they are because it's a spray and pray approach. And if you can't understand marketing, if you can't understand targeting, if you can't understand what your position in the market is and your product differentiation, your product isn't going to speak for itself and your and your sales tactics, no matter what they are, are not going to work. So you have to be smart about marketing and you can't just say, well, we're going to build it and they will come. This is not field of dreams. That's not how it works. You have to be really smart and systematic about how you go through building that product-led growth marketing plan because it's not just here try my product and i think that's a that's a huge misunderstanding 
you know, I can't talk about other industries. I'm sure it's that way too, but a huge misunderstanding, especially in the cybersecurity industry. And Adrian, to something you said, you know, screenshots uh, go a long way. You know, everybody's so keen on getting these great websites with cool graphics that they forget that when people are doing research, they need to be able to differentiate for themselves. They don't want to have to read through buzzwords. They don't want to have to guesstimate on what you're doing. They want to be able to see it. And you're not giving away your secret sauce if you're more clear. I know there's SEO. I know there's analyst coverage. But you're not giving away your secret sauce, your intellectual property, if you're clear on what your product does without the buzzwords. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree. And frankly, like I have, you know, I can talk a lot about this whole concept that I, I, I discuss quite often. And I wrote a bunch of blog articles at uh, Venture Insecurity. It's about the, the, the idea of moving from the promise-based into the evidence-based security. You know, where there was a time when a company would come into the, to the vendor and say, hey, vendor, I need something to, to make me safe. And then the vendor would sell this amazing product where they press the red button, it activates shield, and now they're good. Now they're safe. Like fast forward into 2023, we know that that is not how security works. And 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 having having the, the, the products, having the components that play well with others that can be can be evaluated, can be can be tested, can be uh, can be assessed, uh, can be inter like can function like in, in the way that's interoperable and and can be integrated with other tooling is important. So to me, I, I I like again. I don't necessarily think you know. See, I, I'm not a big. I'm, I'm a product guy, and as as a, as a very pragmatic person who does a lot of also uh, uh, work with with early stage startups. And by the way, I absolutely agree with you, Tyler, around the the the, the typical the typical uh, cybersecurity founder persona. But I do I do see a lot of this too. And and the idea that that PLG is amazing is very appealing to people who 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 think that, well, we can just keep building and then the customers will just come because we've got the new cool technology. And unfortunately, that is not the case. And companies to, who need to, like companies that are looking to succeed, companies that are looking to grow and, and build a sustainable go-to-market strategy, like have to, have to look at what works, have to try different things and look at what works. Making the product accessible is a great idea. Making the product easy to try is a great idea. But at the end of the day, they're in it to build to build a company, to build a solution to the problem, and to build a business on top of that solution, so that they can they can continue solving other problems that are adjacent to to, to what they started with. And unless they build that sustainable go to market strategy, whether it's through PLG or whether it's not through PLG, if it is more suitable for their specific market, like they won't be able to sustain themselves. Yeah, so, so to <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead, Ross. Uh, sorry. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I know that initially, like if you look from the outside, like somebody like coming with the head of product title and with the product hat, uh, like you probably naturally. And, and also I do talk a lot about PLG. Like I, I wrote like seven or eight or even more posts about it. Like it, you probably naturally expect me to be like, hey, you know what? Forget about everything. Here is PLG. But I'm a much more reasonable human than that. <laughs> So, you know, in, in the vein of things that work for everyone, um, you know, as, as we wrap up here, Ross, uh, wh where would you point people to 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 get those fundamentals? I mean, you've you've already thrown out some great tips, you know, making it easier for people to learn about your product, um, stuff that seems obvious, but uh, but apparently has to be said. 
but um, uh, other than your your blog is obviously a, a good source for a lot of this stuff, uh, or, or your your newsletter, which you know you can read as a blog. That's that's the thing I love about newsletters now is it, it's flexible. But where where would you point people to for those fundamentals? Ah, uh, I mean, frankly, I don't like I don't think there is like th there isn't a lot about specifically PLG in cybersecurity. I mean, there is there is enough, but but a lot of it has has some agenda behind it and people trying to either sell a certification or sell a course. I think fundamentally, uh, there are some like basics, of, basics of product management that are useful. Uh, there are some great books. Uh, what comes to mind? Oh, <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I am. I feel. I feel like I. I've been reading just so much that I'm. I'm having a, a, having trouble just shortlisting a, a certain book. Uh, there is. There is a lot. There is. I, I think there is a. There is an institution called like either Product Led Alliance or something similar, like Product Led dot org or Product Led dot com. They they have a lot of materials around metrics and around like the, the the approach itself. Uh, but fundamentally, like honestly, I think picking up any any book about the go-to-market strategy is great. Like I like uh, obviously awesome. It's a fantastic book about positioning in general. Uh, like incredibly, incredibly useful. Uh, in the context of product, there's so many YouTube videos uh, where there, there are institutions such as Product School that put in a lot of content. Reforge, uh, which is uh, like a Silicon Valley based, like a bootcamp and, and school run by by uh, practitioners. There is a lot, and frankly, I think what's even more more useful than uh, than uh, than uh, reading books is trying and seeing what works, and like yeah. being very methodical about it. Always be A/B testing. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's hard. Like it's hard to A/B test when you're at an early stage because, frankly, if you have like right. 100 people visiting your website, like what can you it's even not test? Enough. Yeah, but like talking to your peers, seeing what has worked, and talking to people, like talking to people outside of those like shiny, great conferences and events where everybody comes in with a great slide deck and says how awesome everything is and how we've implemented this fantastic framework. Because what what many people will find is if they catch speakers in a more of a private setting and ask them, "Hey, how did this really go?" The story is going to be quite different. So it's being able to understand that there are no silver bullets, and the vast majority of the companies that are successful, they were successful because they were they were trying different things. They were they were doubling down on what works, cutting losses, and 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 not doing the stuff that doesn't. And and none of them were hopeful. Like all all of them were looking for for some evidence that some that a certain approach works. And sometimes you have to be persistent enough before you can see the results. But that's why there is no science, and that's why the go-to-market strategy is such a is such a fascinating area. And that's why people like uh, that's why I know I will have a job in this industry or in, or in any other with ChatGPT or or any other advances like. You still need to you still need to figure out how to bring the product to, to market, and it's both an art and a science. Wonderful. Well, Ross, you are obviously awesome, and thank you for joining us in Enterprise Security Weekly today. This has been a, a really fun chat. Thank you so much. It's thanks, team. All right, we'll we'll be back in a few moments with the weekly enterprise news. 
Attackers are only getting more proficient, so how can you proactively adapt your cybersecurity strategy? Core Security by Fortra helps you uncover and prioritize the risks that pose the biggest threat to your organization. Core Impact is a penetration testing tool that safely finds and exploits vulnerabilities using the same techniques as attackers. You can conduct advanced pen tests with ease using certified exploits and automation. Take your engagements further by pairing with our red teaming tools from Cobalt Strike and Outflank. Learn more at www.securityweekly.com forward slash core security. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. We would like to invite our listeners to be part of the 2023 SC Awards. Our prestigious and competitive SC Awards program recognizes outstanding innovations, organizations, and leaders that are advancing the practice of information security. This year, there are awards in 36 categories up for grabs, including the Best IT Security-Related Training Program, Innovator of the Year, Best Sassy Solution, and more. We'd love to see your company in the spotlight. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash SC awards to submit your entries by March 13th. That's coming um, up soon. Adrian, Adrian yeah. I would like to formally submit uh, you for uh, podcast host of the year. Uh, I wonder if there's a category for that. We're going to have to. A hundred percent. I will nominate you and I will ask for everyone in the audience to go to your favorite Reddit uh, channel, go to your favorite Slack channel. And let's make a campaign for Adrian for uh, Cybersecurity Podcaster of the Year because that's how awesome he is. Thank you. I appreciate You're that. You're welcome, my friend. It, there, there are podcast awards. I actually have an email in my inbox. I just started following a newsletter that's all about podcasting, podcast technology, podcast software, trends in podcasting and all that. Uh, yeah, the, they call them the Ambies. Let's get yeah, you nominated, guess, my guy. It's not just podcasting. It's the awards for excellence in audio. So I imagine like audiobooks, you know, the voice talent who read audiobooks and stuff like that would probably be part of that. But uh, but yeah, I guess uh, like I'm a professional now, so I need to <laughs> I need to start learning about the this whole audio uh, professional. You, uh, you need you need to work on your smooth, silky voice, Adrian. Yeah. And my accent and stuff. I, I would love to read audiobooks. I love reading books to my kids. At night. Like uh, I've always wanted to do that. Write some, write some kids' books and and do the audio. Anything longer than that, I, I don't know if I could sit down and read like a thousand-page book. The audio version, I'd figure out. I, I do. I do not like them. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Adrienne. <laughs> all right. Let's, <laughs> all right. Let's get to the real news. Come on. <laughs> all right um not a ton of funding this week i added one at the last minute here we, we have three at 20 million kato security raised 20 million revel stoke raised 20 million and oligo security raised 20 million but not all at the same series Ooh, some of them are a, some of them yeah i'm not sure which one kato is is that a b I'm not sure that it Kato's says. been around a while. That'll be at least a B. They've been around a hot minute. People are nervous because I, I think some of these might be down rounds and, and they don't want people to make that connection necessarily. I think I, that's that's oh, my yeah. theory. Uh, that well, the Kato one okay. says bringing the company's total investment to 31.5. So it's definitely 
not their first go around. And yeah, they've yeah, been around for a while. Yeah, it could be could be seed. You could have seed that large. Uh, Kato looks like they took a B in on March 9th. So Kato is a B, $20 million B led by Eurozeo. So we got two Bs and an A. Oligo Security has the the big round out of the out of the three here. And that's uh, an Israeli startup. And looks like library level security. Speaking of SBOM and knowing what's going on with your libraries, it looks that like is the uh, hotness right now. This whole this whole AppSec reinvention library level SBOM market it's a super hot like I've, I've probably i've probably seen at least six or seven pitches in, in the last three months on on that market alone and all with a very very similar storyline that's not very differentiated and really do, is going to struggle to stand up against the rest of the app sec um broader app sec solution that whole stack uh, they're going to have to figure out how they do it different or better than the traditional way well, uh, unlike some of these other categories that we've seen that are kind of theoretical, uh, this is something that attackers are absolutely going after. You know, they're putting backdoors and NPM uh, uh, packages and stuff like that. You know, they absolutely realize that there's an opportunity here to hack into an MSSP or into, uh, you know, some kind of supply chain component and uh, and get more bang for their buck. You know, why? why? Yeah. <laughs> I take a path that only gives you access to uh, one enterprise when you can get access to a hundred or, or a thousand. Yeah, the thing so about the thing about question. this is though, it's it's not it's it's actually not a um, a new thing. Like I remember when I was a Veracode ten years ago, ten years plus at this point. Like we were talking about, um, I, I don't remember what we called it, certified pre-owned software. I think we called it. Basically, you know, you're using some kind of open source or embedding something into yours and that transitive trust occurs, right? That's not new. What's new is that people are actually actively trying to fix the problem because it's it's becoming a more common occurrence. That's all. Go ahead, Katie. I didn't mean to jump on you there. No, this is actually a, a, a good follow-up to that, too. My, my question here in this space is... This isn't new, and this is a capability that certain vendors have or could have had years ago. So who's going to be the winners here? These new companies coming in and taking advantage of a good opportunity or the companies that have been around and been maybe a little negligent on this for a while, but who have the uh, the base for building this? Yeah, it's going to be a fun one to watch because the, as long as the technology disruption and innovation is there, they can disrupt the software composition analysis market if they're not innovative enough, if they're not doing anything truly different and they just come across as a brand new way of doing SCA from a value proposition standpoint, they, they won't disrupt the market. And really, it's about understanding the fidelity of what's in your application, what goes into it and what comes out of it. Right. Um, and that's not an easy thing to solve. It's um, it's about making sure that every ingredient in the recipe is is secure, as uh, as we were talking about at the top of the hour. Or the top of the show. So Revelstoke. Do you guys know what Revelstoke is? Nope. What they do? They are the first SOAR platform built on a unified data layer. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the first SOAR platform built on a unified data layer. All right, well, good for them. That sounds amazing. 
Yeah, is it, is uh, that true? Apparently, they're saying it acts like a Rosetta Stone. I think they're saying that uh, somehow they can avoid having to build parsers. Um, they, they've built some kind of technology that allows them to to integrate because SOAR is only as good as your integrations, right? You know, if this message, this alert pops up here, then go to this system here and, and do X. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, clearly that's the pain point of any SIM or SOAR. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I remember <clears throat> Elastica. Uh, which was acquired by Bluecoat, which was acquired by Symantec, uh, had some IP on this, had, had some built some technology where they're trying to automate the process of building um, new integrations. You know, where they're they're trying to. I, I don't know if they called it if they used ML or AI or anything like that, but they would try to automatically scan a website, you know, and and, and figure out the structure of it. You know, so not for a SOAR or a, or a SIM use case, they were a CASB. But, um, you know, because their they're CASBs would break anytime the website would break, if Salesforce made a change to where a button was or, you know, how, how something's organized from a UX perspective, uh, you know, these reverse proxy uh, CASBs would break. They're trying to build something to automate this. So mm. maybe, they're, maybe sure. they're trying to do something like that, but I, I think that's – that's a huge one there. Like I'm sure you guys encounter it all the, or, or did uh, when you were at Jupiter one and at, at Exonius, because another business that's built on all the integrations and yeah. you've got to justify, you know, the, the yeah. effort into building, you don't want to build an integration for one customer and only one customer ever uses it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have uh, a few different ideas around that topic of kind of this unified data lake connect connector kind of thing, but they're not, I mean, really, what it is is they're they're pulling together just like anybody else, a bunch of a bunch of uh, integrations into your infrastructure, be it your security tooling or your infrastructure tooling, to the APIs of those systems and pulling in the appropriate data and doing a correlation of you know a higher level analyzed result that you can't get from any individual tool in isolation. That's what the play is. It's the same play Jupiter One has, same play Exonius has, same play. Literally, I can count dozens of vendors that are doing the same thing. They just all have a different different view on what the value prop that comes out of it is, right? In this particular case, it's a SOAR. In other particular case, it's incident response platform. You know, I've seen uh, identity-based um, cybersecurity via, done via this way. It's, it's the collection of lots of data. Now, they're going to run into the same scale problem as everybody else, and that is those integrations take time and energy to maintain and develop and, and build up. Um, but, you know, I think you've got a good point, Adrian, there, that that kind of unified middleware might make a really good company at this stage. Well, honestly, that's what Tynes is doing. You know, they basically have a no-code integration builder, you know, uh, looking at, at how you connect APIs with Tynes. Like, you, you do need to know the API endpoints, uh, and you need to input some information about those endpoints. and. You know, you're telling it, okay, put this there, you know, uh, connect these two different things, but you don't have to write any code to do it. You know, you can, well, yeah. The harder part is the output format. So connecting up to the API and pulling the data is one right. thing, but what's the, what's the unified output format that is normalized so that it yeah, is a usable data yeah. format for anybody that wants to build on top of it? And I've got a few ideas on that too, but um, I don't want to get too deep into that. Go ahead, Katie. Were you trying to say something? 
No, I was just nodding along. Um, yeah, could. I think I was saying before, you know, one of the one of the issues I take with this wording is, you know, being the first, maybe the first in that space. Um, I think their concept is good. Do I think it's unique? I don't necessarily think that is the case, um, but I think it's necessary, absolutely necessary. But that's well, that's you, all. you're going to love I, you're going to love the Cato press release because they are the first cloud forensics and incident response platform. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's the Once first. Once again, is 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 you that true? A, you get a. <laughs> is that really true? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I mean also, it's definitely what benefit. What I, I know that companies take some sort of solace in saying we're the first at this, but but it, how far does that actually go? Because. Being the first only matters if you're also the best. And best is always relative. And one of the things that I learned when I was an analyst is never say first, best, unique. Um, yeah. There's one more I can't remember right now because I'm on my soapbox. But um, companies who rely on that wording, A, they need to back it up. And secondly, it, anytime you think of the first product released in any space, anywhere, like let's take cars, for example, what good would it do now for, for some company to say, we are the first car who has automatic brakes, had automatic brakes uh, or anti-lock brakes or whatever it is. Um, well, automatic brakes matter? are a thing now Because every, every car now has anti-lock brakes. Every car that's made now has anti-lock brakes. So, does does your market actually care when you say, "Hey, I was the first. Right. And also, if you are the first to build a product, you're the you're the first version. We all know that versions get improvements. That's why there are versions. That's why no company stays at v one for very long. So this first is really, I think it hurts companies more than it helps companies. and i I also think when they say only, they're just pinning a target on their backs because it's really only a matter of time until somebody else does exactly what they do, maybe in a different way, but the output is the same. And from a buyer's point of view, you know, if you're going here, does it matter if you start here and go here or if you start here and go here? Maybe, maybe not. And, and so saying first only or best, you know, that that's, I just don't know if it helps you in your marketing. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly has in the past in the auto industry, like like uh, there's Audi's, you know, Quattro system was was real big. You know, they won a bunch of World Rally uh, championship races with it, you know, when nobody else was using all-wheel drive. And, you know, you'd see it badged on the car, you know, graphics on the side of the car, you know, and eventually, like, like you don't see that anymore. You know, Audi is more of a luxury vehicle now, you know, less of a connection to 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 rally stuff in, in their marketing. You know, but Subaru stuck with it. You know, Subaru still, you know, very, um, you know, uh, leans heavily on their all-wheel all drive, the fact that most of their cars have all-wheel drive. So, I don't know. I don't know if that transfers over to, to security, but, like, if you do something really well, you know, if that's part of your DNA – you know, 
and to your point, Katie, I don't care if you've done it first. Like, like, do you do it really well? <laughs> I care more about whether you do it really well than if you're the first or the fifth or the 12th, right? Exactly. Exactly. Because there are going to be iterations of anything that your company does or that your product category does. So best, is it subjective? Yes. But if you have an argument for that and you can demonstrate that, okay, I'm, I'm all right with that. You need to be able to back it up, but I'm okay with that. But first, it's kind of meaningless. You know, I, in my head, I think, hmm, maybe I don't want to try the first iteration of a product. Maybe I want them to work out the bugs a little bit. So is that helping or hurting? It depends on who your who your buyer is. Know your buyer, know your market. Yep, yep. All right, let's let's move on. Uh, it's too easy to to rant about uh, press releases. I don't want to spend too much time on that. Um, number seven, uh, Cyber Fortress. You know, this is pretty cool. This is a, a Polish team has come up with a a board game. There's a PDF here at this link. Uh, I couldn't actually uh, link directly to this one entry it's just how the the first website is is set up but there's there's a, a pdf of the slides you know it goes through how the game works and stuff like that and you know, honestly i hadn't gotten real excited about cybersecurity card deck games and stuff like that mostly because i haven't had an opportunity to play them but at sony will use cyber defense matrix conference uh, everybody got a copy of this game and, and it's a game that you can't buy. You can only get it directly from the vendor here, which is, uh, uh <laughs> having trouble with my camera, Cycraft, um, called Cybercans. And it's basically like Monopoly. Uh, but, uh, as a CISO, you're, you're buying different sec security technologies and, you know, you roll the dice, you move around the board. If you land on a, an attack, then you have to defend against that attack. And depending on what technologies you have, you roll for different things. And, and it's it's a lot of fun. And it translates pretty well, you know, because it obviously throws in that element of, of uh, chance and, and risk, you know, as, as, you know, with regards to how, how you're going to fare uh, during an attack. And... Um, and yeah, yeah, I, I, I think um, you can have some really good conversations around this. You know, the ta my table at the conference, uh, we were supposed to start doing birds of the feather type stuff, and, and we just ignored it because we we're having so much fun playing the game, and we we're just devoted to it. Everybody had their budget. It's got little money in it, just like Monopoly. Uh, it, it's uh, I was really impressed with it. They actually hired um, board game, experienced board game makers to make the game and gave them the, the parameters for making it. So this, uh, the, the, the one that I've linked to here uh, seems pretty cool and, and a bit more accessible too, you know, since this one you can't buy. But, you know, you know the, this one, they, they show you all the details of how it works. Um, I don't know how much, you know, how excited you guys are to talk about the, the U.S. cybersecurity strategy. I'm I'm about two thirds of the way through the document, and, and for me, it's mostly highlighting stuff that's already going on. But I link to a bunch of different articles here, you know, different people's takes. You know, people read it and took different things from it depending on their backgrounds. But I don't have a lot to say about it at this point, except it's it's a good update, and I I think uh, there's some really good stuff going on, you know, especially between CISA and and MITRE. 
you know, I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of good collaboration between public and private industry. Yeah, I'll be honest with you, Adrian. I struggled to uh, stay awake in that, uh, in that tome of reading. It's just too dense, too long, too govy. It's just not my jam. There's a lot of back padding, you know, like, like con- self-congratulation mm-hmm. in it. And there's, uh, they make sure to tell you Russia's bad and China's bad and DP- DPRK is bad. Um, <laughs> like there, you can tell it's written by committee, right? Like mm-hmm. somebody said, Hey, mm-hmm. it, here, here's a blurb of text that has to go in there and they just copied and pasted it right in. So, uh, more interesting to me, uh, if it wasn't blatantly obvious is some of the AI stuff going on and, and a lot of it's, uh, the thinking around it. So, you know, I've used chat GPT a little bit. Um, not enough that I can get what I really want out of it, uh, even 10% of the time. Like I'm just, uh, you know, kind of struggling with, with how to work it at this point. Uh, but there's some really interesting essays out there. Uh, and, and honestly, you know, so uh, Mark Andreessen has a couple essays out about it. You know, the, the first big one that mm-hmm. he released was why AI won't cause unemployment, which, which I, I don't even think needs to be said. You know, it's, I mean, sure, there, there's people out there, you know, that have always shouted about any, any new techno- technological advancement that automates something that was previously done manually. And of course, we, we, we've never seen it. You know, I think famously in Time Magazine or something like that, somebody predicted that we would have 20-hour work weeks weeks by, you know, twenty the year 2000 or 2010 or 2020 or something like that. And it, it's, it's clearly not going to happen. So the more interesting one, I think, is Daniel Meisler's article here, How AI is Eating the Software World, which is ironic because the title of it is a play on Mark Andreessen's um, famous essay from 2010, I think, about software eating eating the world, and uh, and I think it's the better article. 100% is the better better article. Not even remotely close. Uh, I've known Daniel for a while, and he writes a lot of great stuff. And I I recently said, and I think I said this to you, Adrian, on Slack, that that could be one of those seminal posts that you go back and read it in 15, 20 years. And you're like, holy cow, this guy was knew exactly where everything was going. And you never know in the moment, right? You didn't know. Uh, Andreessen didn't know when he wrote software is eating the world that he was right. He thought he was right. He was fairly confident he was right, or he wouldn't have written it. Right. But looking back 20 years later, after that thing came out, you realize just how right he was. I think Daniel's paper is of that potential magnitude over time. Uh, if you read one post today on here, that's the one that I would say you have to read. I agree. And it's the reason it's a valuable post and, and it's a, it's a long read. It's a 15 minute read. The reason I think it's so valuable is Daniel breaks it down. He gives you a framework that you can use to apply to AI things to, to determine, to understand where the value is and, and how to get value out of AI in this current form, the generative uh, AI, uh, particularly, but, and he gives you a bunch of examples and uh, always like, like, I think stuff like this is so hard to understand without examples. And, and like one of his examples he uses is write a romantic poem from Luke to Leia in the style of Shakespeare. And he points out like, like understand, and, and I think he's even being conservative, conservative here 
with the number of non-trivial subjects that ChatGPT has to understand to be able to, to do this, which it does really well. You know, it's got to understand the English language, how poets write, how Shakespeare uh, specifically writes, Star Wars, the fact that Luke and Leia are siblings, and the concept of, of forbidden love. And I, I would go even beyond that. And the fact that it, like, like just saying Luke and Leia, you know, that, that it understands that like, you can be that vague. Uh, and it understands the context behind that because it, yeah. it understands you know, pop culture. You know what? The the most important thing that you said there, it's actually only one word that matters. Out of everything you just said, the only word that matters is understands, right? Yeah. We're not talking about a trivial level of pulling stuff off the internet and regurgitating it. There's some comprehension level that has to occur to understand that Luke and Leia were siblings, that there's, you know, the, the, um, uh, forbidden love aspect there's that that it was a movie like it's not just pulling one-liners off and gluing them together there's a depth of understanding that has to happen for that level of writing to occur and i think that's the point of daniel's essay is that we have created finally a system that understands and that's why fundamentally sure it may not understand everything at this point but we know how to make the computer understand context. And that's the difference between sentience and non-sentience. Yeah. Yeah, and it's um, – so So this weekend, it was actually listening to the All In podcast. Uh, you know, some, something somebody said on there fired me up, and I started writing my next uh, post for the CyberY. And, uh, and uh -huh. then I read this. Then I read this, and I'm I'm already I'm I'm gonna have to go back and and kind of reconsider, um, you know that this might this might change how I'm thinking about it. And what's funny about that, Tyler, mm -hmm. <laughs> is that you, you're already writing your retort to to my article that's not finished. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and, I and, saw your part your part written article. I'm like, oh, well, he's wrong. I got to write the counterpoint. Let's go. Game on. <laughs> yeah. And, and you you may have nothing to retort. I, I I may um I may have to turn an about face on that before I even get it published. I, I should have gotten it published <laughs> on on Saturday. Yes, you should have because then I would have something to retort. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, can we bring up the Silicon Valley Bank shares issue? Yeah, let's go straight to that. Yep. Do you mind jumping down to twenty four? Because uh, the reason why I want to bring it up is it is breaking news literally right now. I'm watching a firestorm on some of my slacks around this. Uh, twenty four trends. Silicon Valley Bank shares slide on stock sale plan to cope with cash burn. Uh, at the time of the writing, it was a forty something percent dump in their stock price. At the last moment, I believe at the close of market was sixty four percent dump, and uh, there is. Literally, my slacks are blowing up right now from founders and investors basically saying, get your money the hell out of Silicon Valley Bank as fast as you possibly can, that there's a, a good chance they could go belly up. Um, they were just basically completely beat down by the market turmoil and the dump in share cost of everything. And the, they, they might not have managed their cash deposits well enough to be able to stay liquid. So uh, if we have any founders, I don't know how true this is. I don't want to spin up a, a oh shit moment that doesn't really need to be done. But I do know that um, some rather smart people, including um, uh, Y Combinator, including um, trying to think of some of the other ones here, uh, Founders Fund and others have sent messages to their portfolio companies saying, please get your money out of Silicon Valley Bank immediately. Uh, it sounds like a snowball. 
effect. Uh, I mean, they, they've taken some actions to, you know, to, to, you know, to, to try and shore things up. But my, my understanding is uh, they weren't getting the number of deposits that they would expect to be, because startups aren't raising <clears throat> as often or as much. Right. So it's interesting how, how just, uh, you know, something like that, which you would think they'd be able to predict, you know, like uh, what last April, you know, I think we, we saw this trend starting and when we started talking about it, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, may, may, it it says, that quickly, it says yeah, it says on this, uh, I'm looking at a wall street journal article here at the same time that just came out about an hour ago. Um, that they were basically that they're attempting to raise 2.25 billion right now to stay solvent, um, basically by selling new shares in an attempt to get enough capital in that they can remain solvent. Um, essentially, I mean, I don't know if this is the case, but generally banks work with a multiplier on cash. You deposit a yeah. dollar, they they loan that out multiple times, right? And basically, you get this multiplier effect, uh, and that's how the the banking system, and specifically currency system, works. And when there's a massive, they call it a bank run. When a bank run occurs, and everybody wants their cash at the same time, banks can't get the cash fast enough, right? Because it's all been loaned out too many times over. And you know, generally, you have to have a certain amount of reserve. That's why they have the Federal Reserve, all sorts of things to back up and play that in a safe way. Um, I don't know, but it could be that Silicon Valley Bank is in a world of hurt with regards to having enough liquid capital if people start hitting that bank looking for funding. And that's why they're raising two and a quarter billion right now by selling a mix of common and preferred stock. Uh, they announced late Wednesday that it will book a $1.8 billion, billion after-tax loss on sales of investments and seek, seek to raise two and a quarter billion ASAP. So... I've heard counter stories, you know, all these, in, um, you know, investors and folks telling the portfolio companies to get the money out of the bank. And then there's there's uh, news articles online from Silicon Valley Bank representatives going, don't worry, we're fine. It's not an issue. So yeah. who knows? Who knows? We've heard real. that. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Anybody remember 2008? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Heard that before. Oh, boy. But literally breaking news at the close of the market today. Silicon Valley Bank CEO tells VC clients to, quote, stay calm. That was two hours ago. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's not a uh, – it, it, having to say that out loud, I think make it, make, makes it worse almost. Yeah, he, he also said um, calls started coming, and I, uh, they started a panic – uh, there is ample liquidity to support our clients with one exception. If everyone is telling each other that SVB is in trouble, that could change. <laughs> and mm -hmm. that's exactly what's happening. Right. But that's, that's how banks are designed. You know, like it's, it's, yep. uh, it, it's like when, when the snow comes, like, like there's more than enough milk and bread for everybody. But if everybody panics and goes and buys two months worth yep. of milk and bread, then that no longer becomes true. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and, and it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy when Silicon Valley Bank CEO tells everybody, hey, stay calm. As long as you don't go tell everybody to, to withdraw their cash, we'll be just fine. You know, immediately everybody's like, I need to withdraw my cash and I need to tell everybody else I know to withdraw because clearly that's a problem. And that starts the bank run. Yeah. Nobody wants to be the last one in line when the money runs out or the exactly. next one in line. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Where else can we go here? So I've got, I've got a bunch bunch of stuff here on 
AI news, and, and the reason for this is there's so much news about what's going on that uh, actually it's story number uh, 15 here. Uh, what OpenAI's API announcement means for makers. Things are moving fast here. And I think for people in security or, or people really in any tech industry uh, need to know is, is kind of a higher level view of, okay, what's going on here? Like everybody's talking about chat GPT. Before that, everybody was talking about Dolly, but maybe you haven't heard of the other things uh, that OpenAI is doing as well and some of these other API, uh, uh, AI um uh, companies and, and stuff that's coming out because they also have whisper, which is a model that can convert audio into text. So it, it's, it, there's like seven different products that they have here. And it's important to understand everything that's going on there. Cause you know, this is stuff that's going to be, you're going to be running into a, at some point, you know, or maybe somebody's going to be asking you about, you know, how, how can we leverage this to, you know, to make, make the sock more efficient or something like that in mm -hmm. two months from now or, or maybe two years from now. It seems like oh, everything's it, moving really fast. Definitely not two years from now. It's it's absolutely an order of months before we start to see like some of those automation components come into play for cyber. I think the key thing here is like, okay, this stuff all came out what last November or something, and it's people it, people are realizing quickly that there's significant value in using some of this stuff, right? I believe it was this week. It could have been last week that they opened up. Um, um, I think it was opening open API did it o open their um, their APIs fully functional APIs at this point now where before it was kind of limited to who, who had access to APIs to do different things and it's it's turning into an even massive like much larger adoption moment now that people can dev on top of open API as a fundamental underpinning uh, can create their own LLMs can modify those LM LL LLMs can train them in different ways and make API calls to get the answers that they need in their moment of context. And again, it's all about understanding and context. And now they've made it easier to access that understanding and context about anything you want. This is massive. This is a game changer. And LLM is a large language model uh, for, for those not familiar with that. Yeah, it's basically just taking taking a, a massive amount of language, or or and, and language is a is a fungible term. It's not just English or Spanish or Chinese. Right. It can be code is a language. I mean, there's lots of different yeah. things. The art is a language. Uh, imagery is a language. Audio is a language. It's taking all of that data and giving you the the ability to apply context and understanding to it to make smart decisions of what comes next. That's really what the fundamentals of of generative AI are. Right. And question to both of you, is OpenAI one of the biggest examples of product-led growth ever? Whew. I don't know the numbers, but I know that they reached, they reached like a, I don't remember, it was 10 million, 100, 100 million faster million. than any, 100 million. Yeah, 100 million faster than any other in product in months. history. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely pretty damn crazy. And and the the, uh, the premium tier is twenty bucks a month. How much money <laughs> do you think they started? Back to what we were 1%, talking about how 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 consumer product or consumer focused products often are more slick and ready to go. You know, people expect more out of them actually than these enterprise products that cost millions of dollars, and they accept quirkiness yep. out of them. 
Yeah, so so are you saying uh, ChatGPT was pretty polished, or uh, to to the degree that it was pretty much impressing the hell out of a lot of people? I mean, it depends who you ask, right? Like if you ask me or you or Tyler, did this write good content? We'd be like, eh, there's some problems here. It's a little glitchy. But for the the average person, that's probably about as well as they write. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I'll, be, better, I'll be honest better with you, Katie. Much. Yeah, better than the average for sure. And I'll be honest with you, Katie, the, the trick to generative AI is not just accepting the content as it is, but really what it solved for me is the blank page problem. So I took a I took a job writing a blog oh. post for somebody and they wanted me to write a very dry blog post, something that I had no interest in writing. I didn't know how to do it. I'm like, how do I get started? I struggled, I struggled, I struggled. I put in a five bullet outline into chat GPT and I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. It jump started me. I had the entire article done in 45 minutes, made a thousand bucks. So, you know, the, the interesting thing about that is if you prompt it right, it gives you exactly what you need to create fantastic content. Yeah. Yeah. And um, like I said, for the average person, they looked at this and went, hallelujah, I never, to, I never have to write anything again. Right. So, Yeah. Uh, from that point of view, pretty polished. Um, and it does, you know, to the previous couple of comments, it, it does learn pretty well. So would this be acceptable in all scenarios? No, of course not. But it was rolled out without a huge number of glaring glitches for the vast majority of its potential user base. Yeah. So AI... AI bots are built into uh, Slack now. So Salesforce, uh, who owns Slack, who bought Slack, uh, announced ChatGPT app for Slack now. Uh, it's built into one of the new search engines I use. It's either Neva or you. I think it's you, you.com, Y-O-U.com, uh, that has a, a chatbot built into it. I've been using it in Notion. So all of a sudden, like my personal use of generative AI, I, I didn't really play with the art tools very much at all. But the text-based stuff, you know, as somebody who produces a lot of content, who writes a lot, who does a lot of research, like it, it went from nothing to daily use uh, almost overnight, which which is <laughs> which is one of the reasons like a third of the news stories today uh, are AI related, and including one of our squirrel stories, which. Uh, if, if our podcast is too long for you, uh, story number 30, uh, there is now ChatGPT for YouTube. You can have ChatGPT uh, check out any of our podcast segments and create a summary for you from YouTube. Well, they would huh. certainly be more succinct than we are. No, I can see exactly what ChatGPT would, Chat would say about... Um, apparently you can't about, no, I, I can't say anything apparently <laughs> but I do know what Chad GPT would say about our news segment made fun of made fun of uh, marketing terms talked about some weird funding that was uh, oh, too high or too low and then laughed at each other about weird squirrel stories that's pretty much every week oh man uh, that's fair we'll have to this is a this is just a free browser extension I'll, I'll have to try this out i suspect yes, what i would it's love doing, to know what it says i suspect it's grabbing the transcription if it's if it's just a browser extension 
it's probably just pulling that text transcription that YouTube automatically generates and then just feeding that to, to an AI. Probably. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'll have to try this out. Maybe we'll read one on air if it's funny or interesting or useful. Uh, let's see what else. Um, I would be remiss, Katie, if we did not talk about women in cyber. I noticed that you you've had a um, your newsletter. Uh, you touched on that. Uh, so why why don't you? Would you mind taking that? Yeah, sure. Um, the first time I wrote about women in cyber was in 2017. I was working at the time for Misty, uh, running the content for InfoSec World, and it was really shocking to me that we had so few women who were submitting proposals. And a lot of the women that actually came to be presenters at the conference were either me going out or me asking the women I knew to go out and recruit women so that we could have a better balance. And, and it, was, it was tough. Um, because women were a lot less likely to step up to the plate and there were so many fewer of them. Um, so I wrote about that also based on some previous experiences I'd had working with subject matter experts in the industry and just the, the low percentage of women. And so I revisited that in 2020 and then revisited it again uh, and just put out a new post. I will put a caveat on the post. The first post that went out was the wrong version apologies, check back on the site now. A first draft was loaded for me into the platform, but updates, no more typos, sorry about that. Um, but the new post, uh, I talked to two women, um, Ellison Ann Williams from Invale, and then Inca, who was just on the podcast, uh, I don't know if it was last week or two weeks ago, uh, but I reached out to her because I thought she was fascinating. And so, you know, based on some of my research and based on their experiences in the industry, this is just, you know, it was for International Women's Day and Women's History Month, just tapping into their experiences and, and what we can do as an industry, because, you know, it's certainly not just women that are underrepresented in security, but if you look from, you know, 2009 to now, it looks like we've really grown our numbers. But if you look at the statistics from my last post, 2020 to now, we haven't grown the number of women in security to a statistically relevant point. It's by like one or two percentage points. If you gather, if you aggregate all of the data about the percentage of women in security, depending on which source you cite, um, and it hovers between like 24 and 26%, again, depending on the source. Um, but if you look worldwide, women in the workforce represent 40% uh, 47%. Did I say that? 47%. Um, so we're only at, let's say an average of 25%. So you're, you're almost half that. And that just doesn't make sense to me. If you look in the U S we're a little above 50%. Women represent 52 ish percent of the population. So there's still a ton of work to be done. Um, there's also a ton of work to be done in other underrepresented populations in security as well as other industries too. But for International Women's Day, uh, just wanted to talk to two amazingly impressive women, and so go read their stories. Uh, and, and where can they read those? Oh, ah, sorry, Substack, the Reformed Analyst. There you go. That is Katie's Substack, the Reformed Analyst. 
And we have a story here. Uh, let's see. It's number 25. Richard Stinnen, who has this amazing database of vendors and products in cybersecurity uh, for uh, Women's Month, uh, for International Women's Month. He pulled uh, some stats here, and uh, or sorry, for International Women's Day uh, on March 8th, which was yesterday. Uh, the stats on 3,309 cybersecurity vendors, only 72 have female CEOs. That's 2.1%, which uh, I always like taking stats like that and, and giving them some uh, uh, context. And so Fortune 500 is 4.2% women. So it's it's roughly, uh, or not roughly, exactly half of what we see in, in the Fortune 500. So... So yeah, yeah, there there are some significant. When I did my last post, Adrian, in 2020, I used the database of the company I was working for at the time, um, and that came up with about five percent. Um, and I knew at the time that that data wasn't necessarily accurate. Um, Richard Steenan's database is much bigger and much more thorough, um, but based on the information I was allowed to use. It was five percent. So this is this is shoring that up and makes it even more kind of stunning to to see how how lacking the industry is in terms of diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Yeah, it, it would it would be great to see some funds that are. I'm sure there's got to be some. Uh, funds that are that are dedicated to addressing this particular issue, uh, Tyler. I, I don't know if uh, I hate to put you on the spot, but um, yeah, you know, I, I, I want to say I've seen this. Yeah, yeah, I don't know them off the top of my head. I know Chensi Wong runs a fund that I believe does a fairly significant. Her fund is women run. I don't believe it requires women. Uh, um, uh, founders, but there are absolutely, and I could be wrong about that. You should look it up, but there's a number of funds out there that, that are specifically geared towards minorities, female, um, people of color, all sorts of, uh, of, of different, um, fund structures. And many of them are investing in cyber. So I think this is something that we recognize is a problem in the VC industry, and we're trying to get more diverse as much as as much as we possibly can. But it is it is a you know it is a hard thing to solve, and it just doesn't solve overnight. It's not like we can just snap our fingers and fix the problem. No, no, and that's that's the reason to talk about it. And it's not just a woman yep. problem; it's a whole industry problem. Um, I know um, I've done a little bit of digging into this, and there are a couple of. Um, firms that I know offhand, like the Female Founders Fund, Rethink Impact is one of them. Um, there's another one called um, Valor Ventures um, that also uh, does a lot of digging into, you know, and investing into women and people of color. Uh, and I'm sure there are many others that aren't coming to mind now, but there are absolutely uh, VCs out there that, that are looking for this, but it's really all about, you know, raising those voices um, and just highlighting, you know, really good work by these people and, and showing that, 
you don't have to be a certain stereotype to be in any industry. It doesn't matter who you are. If you have an interest, there's always room for you, especially in an industry like ours that needs creativity. Hear, hear. Seconded. All right. And I think, you know, we like to end on a non sequitur, you know, something kind of funny. And uh, I think that's got to be story number 27 here. <laughs> we have five squirrel stories because I've been really distracted this last week. So I've had <laughs> a lot of a lot of squirrels running around in my attic. And uh, 28's pretty funny. 28, uh, I'll just briefly mention, like, imagine Clubhouse, but somebody just randomly calls you and talks to you for five minutes on the phone. That's what the Anyone app is. It's a five-minute phone call with a stranger. In so, uh, this will never take nobody, off. Yeah, nobody wants yeah. to talk on the phone. <laughs> Exactly. This will never take off because if you talk to everyone that's of the age that would use it, they don't call each other anyways. They don't even FaceTime each other. They just use Snapchat or, or slide into my DMs or whatever goofy thing the millennials are using this day these days anyways. And yeah, this if it does take off, it will rapidly devolve into a pick up the phone and somebody insults you for five minutes and then they hang up on you. Yeah, uh, Tyler, I just have to point out that if you're using the phrase, whatever they use these days, meaning whatever these kids these days use, <laughs> you are officially old. Katie, get <laughs> off my lawn. Just get off my lawn. <laughs> uh, what, what was the day today? It was... Uh, um, get over it. Get over yes, it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> hey, Tyler, get over it. You're old. Yeah, I'm over it. I'm over it. What can I say? <laughs> but but the, well, the you one... want my snoring dog too. So <laughs> <laughs> I was enjoying the snoring. Um, yeah, but like Tyler said, uh, if you only check out one story from today's show, uh, that should be Daniel Meisler's "How AI Is Eating the Software World." You can probably just search on that and find it. Um, but if you have time for two and want to laugh, uh, number 27, I, I, I've been getting into this kind of like designers having fun, uh, you know, going down this rabbit hole. Like there's this guy who has a newsletter who sends out like a, a, a fake mock-up of an app that already exists. Like. <laughs> He, he had this uh, food delivery app where it was like gently used food. Like somebody took a bite of it, didn't like it. <laughs> he does this <laughs> daily. But this is another one in the same vein where, where people were challenged with coming up with the worst volume sliders imaginable. And uh, it's just absolutely delightful. I love it. <laughs> it's like how hard can you make changing the volume? Sorry, speaking of volume, that was supposed to be on mute. I hit the wrong button. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was already I, muted, and I hit the mute button, ended up unmuting, and then sneezing. <laughs> I, I don't think I should share. I, I will say my favorite is the very last one, and I'm not going to say what it is because I don't want to spoil it for anybody that, that's going to click the link and check it out. But my very favorite is the last one. I'm I'm in that rat hole right now, and it is absolutely amazing. It is so good. <laughs> All right. And with that, thanks so much, Tyler and Katie, for joining me today. 
It's it's been, it's been lovely. It was, it was a good episode today. And a big thanks to everybody watching or listening to this week's episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. We will be back next week. <laughs>